Post-holiday season. How was your holiday lunchbox? It was shitty. How was yours? It was... It was alright. Good. Didn't really go anywhere or do anything exciting, but spent time with my partner. Just two people having Christmas with themselves, and that's not so bad. It was lovely. It was lovely. My whole family got sick, so they just canceled. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. I'm sorry. Yep. But yeah, we're um we wanted to do a holiday episode, I guess a Christmas episode. And I guess I had originally planned to record this like on Christmas Eve, but you know how things go. Yeah, so scheduling. The holidays have passed, you know, uh, we had our Christmas, we had our New Year's, and now we're doing our Christmas episode and <laughs> maybe if I get my act together and edit this really quickly, we can get it out there. Uh not quite as delayed as the Halloween episode. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I guess we decided to talk about Miracle on 34th Street, the original from 1947, and then Steven Spielberg's cult classic, but also much maligned Hook. Totally. Uh, Miracle on 34th Street is like a Christmas classic, many would say. But I don't think Hook is often brought up as being a Christmas movie. Or maybe that's just not the one that anyone cares to debate at this moment. Right. I guess, like, all the normies are still having the is Die Hard a Christmas movie debate. Which I guess, you know, for most of us was settled a long time ago. Yeah. But uh, Hook, I don't know that many people make the argument for it being a Christmas movie. But I think by pairing it with Miracle on 34th Street we kind of get closer to an understanding of why you could see Hook as being a Christmas movie. So, yeah, we'll start with Miracle. Um, This is the first time you've seen Miracle, right? You never really watched it as a kid? No, never, never. It's it's a weird one, I thought, but like specifically as far as thinking about watching it as a kid because I don't think it's really for kids. Oh, no. Um, yeah. You know what I mean? And like, I don't even really think mm-hmm. it's completely for adults either. Like there's, there's definitely like, there's a kidness <laughs> to it that feels like, oh, it's a kid's Christmas movie. But then it's like completely focused on like, there's no such thing as Santa and whatever. So that I think makes it not quite as accessible yeah. to like a five-year-old as some of these other ones. Plus, I don't know that a five-year-old would really enjoy, you know, much of this movie. Well, I certainly but, didn't as a kid. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Miracle on 34th Street was, like, definitely not a Christmas movie I watched frequently. I think I would, like, catch it on TV every once in a while, you know? Okay. Like, you'd be at, like, a, Christ- a Christmas party or something like that. But I don't I don't remember Miracle ever being a Christmas movie that my parents pushed or that my parents were even very interested in. Right. And, I don't know, maybe part of it is because of the subject matter and the whole, do we really want to be like showing our kid this movie that 
really makes them think deeply about the reality of Santa Claus. Right, right, right. We're trying to keep um, this ruse up. Like, why are we going to make them question it? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I do think the way Miracle on 34th operates would allow a kid to, in the end, believe that he is Santa Claus. No, totally. I don't totally. think... The movie, like, basically, what I think is really interesting about this movie, watching it now as an adult, is that ambiguity it holds and the contradictions it holds in that question, you know? Right, right. You really can, in the end, see it both ways. Either, like, he actually is Santa Claus or it's all kind of this weird intersubjective reality kind of ruse that everyone plays along with. Right, right. And it's because they play along that things work out or something, um, as -hmm. opposed to there being some sort of actual fantasy element that makes it happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that that question of intersubjective reality is a really big part of Miracle. And, like, I think Miracle does seem to be a movie, like... Its preoccupations are with psychology. Definitely. And, you know, and like the psychological underpinnings of sales and like capitalism and consumerism and stuff like that. Right, right. I mean, like, I think even in the beginning, like, uh, Shellhammer says about, you know, the Santa Claus, he's a born salesman. I just feel it. Right. There's this kind of question of whether or not. Santa Claus or Chris Kringle in this instance, I guess we'll call him because that's his name. Um, Whether or not Chris Kringle really actually does believe he's Santa Claus or is just kind of so aware of like psychological reality that he, he knows what's important. He knows that like really what people believe is what's more important than what's actually real or that like optics are what matter more than truth. Oh, totally. Totally. You know, you have, um, like very early in the movie, Fred, you know, he, he's like, he's, he lives in the same apartment building as Doris and, um, her daughter, Susan played by a very young Natalie Wood, which I didn't even realize before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he admits to Doris straight away that like the way you get to the mother is through getting to the child first. Right. You know? And I think that's, that's like weird. That's like a weird. Yeah. Like it's specifically like later in the movie when he teams up with Santa and he's just kind of like, I got the mom, you got the daughter. <laughs> like, let's, let's, let's go in and, you know what I mean? You seduce her <laughs> yeah, and I'll seduce yeah. her. Like, it's pretty, it's, it's weird. Like, it's a weird, like, <laughs> subject for this movie to, like, it's like, well, the way to get to this one is to seduce this one. And there's like some, it's, it's weird and creepy. <laughs> Don't you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, Fred is definitely not portrayed as a weird and creepy character. Right. And neither is Chris Kringle. But right. I think that's what's interesting about this movie is that when you really, like, actually consider what's going on and what these, like, what these characters are doing, they're kind of, like, manipulating people because of psychological concepts. Exactly. Exactly. You know? um, and that's, like, what, you know, madmen would do to, like, sell a product or whatever. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and I think it's interesting because this is, what, what year was this, did you say? 
47. Yeah. So like, it's like I mean, just post World War II. Yeah. So psychology is pretty like a, it's a new burgeoning field that's kind of starting to take off and stuff. Oh, yeah. And this like mm. I mean psychology and advertising is just starting. <laughs> like you know what I mean in the in the past like for sure at least in the past 20 years or 30 years. Um, so the idea that this movie is like tackling that is totally topical and like like timely. Um, but I, I, oh, yeah. I think that what you were saying about the, the seduction being connected to this, too, I think is really interesting. Because you kind of see these psychological, like, things being played out in all of these different scenarios, right? Where it's kind of like, mm-hmm. well, we're using psychology to sell to, you know, people in capitalism. But, like, also we're, like, selling people on this fantasy world in, like, a religious sort of way. Um, but also mm-hmm. we're selling people on ourselves and like whatever in this seduction sort of way or whatever and it's like it's all sort of the same thing um Mm -hmm. and being played out in kind of this sort of fractal um which i think is really cool and interesting um it's like a lot more interesting than a lot of you know kids christmas movies as far as like trying to actually make a political statement and have like a real conversation about that absolutely yeah, I mean, even in like in the um in the hearing at the end of the movie, Fred uses um what's his name? Uh Thomas Mara is the um the prosecution. Okay. And like he he even says there's like even a scene with him and his wife and like his his wife is like actually kind of like annoyed with him for taking the case or whatever and she's like I wish I had married a garbage man or something. And, <laughs> right, right. You know, and he and he says he's like, I'm just doing my job. I have to, I have to represent the state of New York. You know, I like the old man too. Right. But like, so his son gets used against him in the court case. Like Fred yeah. puts his son on the stand and says, like, your father's an honest man, right? He's like, yeah, my daddy wouldn't tell me anything that wasn't so. Right. Right, daddy. You know, and it's like, and <laughs> because of this, it's like the whole, it's like the exact tactic he's using in the beginning of like you get to the father by getting through the son. Yeah, yeah, know? yeah, totally, totally. And I also, I also think it's interesting that, that so much of that trial has to do with this sort of consistent, like you were saying, the um, subjective reality thing. Mm-hmm. I, like a lot of that trial has to do with like trying to create a consistency between those realities, right? Like that child's reality mm-hmm. and like the real world and whatever. And like by kind of taking that child's reality seriously in this trial, it like legitimizes, like, I, I don't know. You know what I mean? There, there's... It's about like creating a cohesion between this fantasy world and the real world and like allowing for a certain amount of like wiggle room to accept that. And I think that that's, yeah, that's yeah. kind of the same thing that happens with the all the mail. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Which like that's basically just like, well, we need to keep a consistency like between these government organizations and whatever. And because like this paperwork came to this place, like we can, you know what I mean? It's yeah, it's just would, like it's kind of a loophole, but it's also like no, it's create like it's it's about this these subjective realities, and if somebody else accepts this reality, then that allows you to play along with their accepting of that reality. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think I think legitimize it. What I think what's interesting about these moments is that often the reason why the reason why they are bending to this idea that there is a Santa Claus or that like goodwill is the way to go is a capitalist motive. It's an economic motive. It's a motive of optics. Like the reason why Macy 
like agrees with this policy to have people get sent to other stores is because it actually has a psychological effect on the consumer that like puts Macy's into goodwill, even though it ultimately just makes them more profit. That ends up being like the real goal here is right. that like if it wasn't succeeding in a way that gave them more profit, they wouldn't be doing it. But exactly. somehow there's this psychological trick where because they're doing this thing that can be interpreted as goodwill. It like puts them in a higher standing and it makes all these people continue to shop with them and come back to them. Exactly. Um, exactly. And that's very like, it's very similar to what's happening in the end with the, um, the judge and the politician when he's like, if you go out there and rule that there's no Santa Claus, here's what's going to happen. Right, right. You're going to destroy all the kids' hearts. They're not going to buy toys. And what are the toy manufacturers going to think about that? And what are the unions going to think about that? And you know what they're going to say? They're going to say it with their votes, you know, yeah, like yeah, that yeah. you're not being reelected, you know? Exactly. And so, like, nothing's about, nothing is actually in reality about a motive of goodwill or really believing or any of this stuff. Even Mr. Macy gets put on the stand at court, and they ask him, do you believe this guy is Santa Claus? And he says yes, because he imagines the headline that would happen the next day. Right, right, right. You know, of him saying there's no Santa Claus. No, right. And um, he's got to stay in good standing. It's all about winning the optics war and the psychological war. Totally, um, totally. And this, this, like, this, I think, is like... When we're talking about subjective reality here and we're talking about Santa Claus and, and these fantasy realities or whatever, what are we really talking about? You know what I mean? Like, I think we're talking about Christianity, right? Like, we're talking about religion, mm -hmm. essentially. This is a Christmas mm -hmm. movie. And, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's, a, and it's talking about the interaction of capitalism with religion. And, like, I think that a lot of what you're describing here is kind of like, well, why do we have freedom of religion in, like, a godless United States of like the 1940s, like you know what I mean, where people are kind of buying yeah, in yeah. less to our spiritual, religious sort of roots and more buying into like these psychological, you know, NAND gates, I don't, like these these buttons that are pushed on people and whatever, and profit motive things and like all of those things that basically are anti-spiritual. They're they're um, materialist mm -hmm. you know what i mean um yeah, yeah, and yeah. materialism like why why would we create a system of government in america that is like a capitalist materialist sort of atheist sort of nation why would we allow for religion and like and why would politicians say that they believe in god why would like you know when they're clearly these sort of godless profit motive you know people um, and you mm. see that in like really cynical ways in this movie, but also like not totally cynical because it does kind of legitimize yeah, yeah. the, the need to allow for that in, in this society. And that, that allows mm -hmm. for the possibility of miracles. Like, you know what I mean? Uh, that sort of ending thing that may or may not be coincidence. And does it matter if it's a coincidence or if it's a thing, because it's just like the type of thing that happens in the world where you see synchronicities and you either attribute it to a God or a higher power or a Santa Claus or whatever. Um, or yeah, you yeah. don't, you just attribute it to materialist, you know, bullshit. Um, I don't know. I, I think, I think, I think it's a really interesting sort of sort of, cause, cause what is Santa? Like this was, this was the thing, you know, back when I kind of turned away from Catholicism in my youth and whatever. Um, I think that a big part of it to me and, and really this gets into like mad men shit and stuff, uh, eventually, but, but, a big part of it is like, what is Santa Claus really? Like, 
it's kind of like a a surrogate for God, essentially, right? Like it's it's the idea of mm-hmm. like you're telling your kids there's this big guy who sees everything that you're doing and he's either going to reward you or not reward you in the end and whatever based on like your behavior and stuff. So you're supposed to be good so that Santa will give you your reward. But also your belief in him is tantamount as well, you know? Yeah, 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 totally. Um, that's, a big, that's a big part of it. Um, but also... I mean, that's that's what legitimizes your behavior, right? Like, that's the reason that you don't mm-hmm. operate by pure materialist capitalist motives. Is like, you're kind of like, oh, I should be nice to other people. Why? Uh, because Santa's watching. And like, he'll know, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, like, share your toys and whatever, blah, blah, blah. So, it's like, okay. like, And that's very much, like, a basic idea of what religion is doing for us. Like, as a... Mm-hmm. you know, race, um, where it's like, well, why should you, you know, love your neighbor as yourself or like, you know, that, that sort of treat other people the way you want to be treated sort of stuff. Like why, what is the thing for that in the modern world? And it's like, well, that's, that doesn't come from capitalism <laughs> and that doesn't come from psychology and it doesn't come from any of these sort of materialist, like science, science-based, um, ideologies. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that yeah, you need yeah, like religion sure. to inject into a society. Otherwise, it's it it becomes an atheist sort of society based on nothing but profit motives and becomes evil and whatever. But <laughs> but I think that when I was younger, like I kind of saw this whole uh, Santa Claus thing and the fact that it was a lie. Like you know what I mean? <laughs> it's just like oh wait, mm-hmm. like there's no Santa Claus. It's pretty easy at that point to then make the jump to like, Oh wait, there's also no Jesus is there. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? There's also no God. Like this is the exact same thing. There's also like, no God. It's yeah. literally the exact same thing. It's not. And like, what I think is really weird is that we created that like that in America, which like around like probably 20, what 30 years before this, like Santa Claus is like a new, like the Santa Claus with the red jacket, like that is a thing that was created. That's Coca-Cola red. Like that is a Coca-Cola mm-hmm. idea of Santa Claus that was given to people. And like the ways that our celebration of Christmas and shit is different than like how it is in with Cinder Claus up in uh, yeah, like the, uh, the Netherlands the or whatever. Yeah, German like the, or, yeah. or St. Nicholas or whatever. Apparently in Poland, it's just mm-hmm. Nicholas. They just call him Nicholas, like <laughs> which is weird. Um but yeah, I think I think that the idea that like that is something that is an American creation of American companies, like creating a capitalist sort of surrogate for God, I think is like really weird and interesting because like to me, it's almost like you're putting like any little kid that you're bringing up this way is going to have a certain trauma where they discover that, like, all the people around them were lying to them about this thing or whatever, and that the, like, n- the normal response to that trauma is going to be, like, wait, isn't God the same? Like, you know what I mean? I feel mm-hmm. like any kid who's raised with Santa Claus is more likely to be atheist as an adult because they're more likely to go through this, like, oh, wait, this was just a lie told to me to keep me in my place and actually, like everything's just based on materialism and shit and that there is no spirituality in the world and blah, blah, blah. And like, that's, we have a far more atheist society now than we did even in the forties. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I I think it's, and I think it's a weird thing that this is something that was put in every single kid's like upbringing 
that seems to me to only get us further from like the ideas of spirituality or religion or whatever, because there's always going to be that shattering moment, you know? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I remember I, when I, I remember finding out about the reality of Santa Claus the same year that my father died. So it was kind of a really intense one, two punch of like, nah, no one's looking out for you. There's no God, there's no Santa Claus. It's all just, you know, but I also think like, you know, you've also come back around to your Christianity, right? And like kind of the older you get, I feel like the conversation that Miracle on 34th Street in its ambiguity really has this conversation very well. Right. And gets to like the heart of what actually Santa Claus does represent and why it is important. And there seems to be a kind of problem about in general, just an understanding of art and an understanding of stories and understanding of why we create myths and what they represent. Right. And I think a lot of the problem with why the discovery of the reality of Santa Claus breaks kids is because there's no conversation around it. Like you don't want to show your kids miracle on 34th street. You don't want to, you don't like the realization just becomes, Oh, it was my parents all along and there's no magic and it's all a lie. But like, Right. Part of the way you could interpret Miracle on 34th is actually it's not a lie. This belief in this thing created the reality. Exactly. Exactly. You know? That's 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 the like, thing is I think you're right. It, it does really have that nuanced conversation specifically with like giving him some sort of spiritual. Th- th- there's something going on there. You know what I mean? Um, there's some mm-hmm. synchronicity going on there. But is that created just through in in this means of seduction is that is that like you know what i mean is this just a Mm -hmm. way for them to create a reality that they can draw these women in with them into and have them all believe in this thing and whatever and does like and is that false or is that not and it doesn't matter because like it actually does kind of create a beautiful reality you know what i mean yeah yeah i mean when you i mean the very end of the movie like is that final moment is what really like lands that ambiguity and that idea that the movie isn't really taking a side. It's the, it's the idea that like you could say that the reason they find that house in the end is because it was all this kind of psychological manipulation that Chris Kringle was doing. Like when the girl, you know, when, when Susan first gives him the picture of the house, Mm-hmm. Like, he, you can tell, like, there's this thing that comes over him, like, this is a tall order. Like, I don't know if this is something I can do. Right. But you can see his gears grinding. You can tell, I know that Fred likes Doris. And that's when he makes the agreement, like, you'll work her and I'll work the child, you know? Right, right. And he's, like, he's like setting up all these pieces so that the most likely outcome will be they're going to get together and they're going to buy her this house. He also, like specifically gives Fred and Doris directions of which way to go so they can avoid traffic at the end. So he knows they're going to drive by the house and he knows that the girl's going to recognize it and whatever. Right. You know, there's this, there's like an absolutely realist interpretation of how this all goes down. That's not magical whatsoever, but they still see the cane there next to the fireplace. Right. And there's that moment of ambiguity. And he says, maybe I didn't do something so wonderful after all. And it's like, it doesn't really matter how it happened, but like, 
acting in faith allowed them to open their hearts to one another. Exactly. And allowed them to actually consider. That's that's what matters is their faith. Yeah, yeah. Because that brings about this thing, whether or not the thing that they have faith in, you know, really did all these things, which maybe Mm -hmm. he did, you know, maybe he did do all these things. And, you know, he actually has, whether it's, you know, superpowers or it's just like some weird autistic ability to go around and like search for a house and, you know, remember where all the toys are and that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's it's about like embracing that guy as opposed to dismissing that guy that allows these people to connect mm-hmm. with each other and then like create a, you know, relationship that then, exactly. you know, is the relationship that they both really do want, you know. Um Exactly. Yeah. They like want to be together and they want to have this house and make this child happy and all this stuff. And, you know, Santa didn't buy the house. That's like a house that's on the market. Like he's going to have to pay for that. But he he just won really big winning that case and whatever. And he gets to start his own firm and all this stuff. And I mean, Doris is already making money, like working for Macy's in a high position or whatever. So, you know, there's a point where Susan says, like, whatever I want, my mother will get it for me if it's sensible and doesn't cost too much, of course. (laughs) Right, right, right. You know, it's like she doesn't really, like, need a Santa Claus because her mother is just this, like, very materialistic solution to everything. Totally. Um, But her mother's alone and, like, completely work-obsessed and, like, is raising her child to be so kind of, like, callous about everything. Yeah. Um, and not like, believe in anything. She's an atheist. Yeah, to um, not believe in anything. And that's leading no her to a lonely, you know, life of misery and work. Um, and she's raising her kid to be the same because she thinks that that's somehow validating because she's free of all of this religious, you know, sentimentality or, or, or superstition. Um, but in the end she kind of like that's that's what is interesting about this movie is that in the end she kind of discovers that like the other way is better (laughs) like yeah yeah in the beginning of the movie she's saying to fred i think we should be honest and truthful with our kids and not have them growing up believing in a lot of legends and myths like santa claus right you know but by (laughs) and like you, you could you could take that as being the more humane thing like yeah why lie to our kids Right. Like, shouldn't we be preparing them for the real world? Right. And, but then it's like gets down to that question of like, well, what is the real world? Exactly. exactly. So like the big climactic conversation is when when Fred comes in and, you know, he says that he quit his job because like if he was going to continue doing the Santa Claus case, he couldn't work for them anymore. Right. And. Doris is just immediately incredulous. Like, you can't just throw your career away because of some sentimental whim. Right. And, like, Fred is like, I promise that if you believe in me, Doris, and then he realizes, like, oh. You don't actually, believe in anything. You don't, like, you, you don't have any faith in me. Yeah. And she's like, it has nothing to do with faith. It's just common sense. Right. He says, faith is believing in things when common sense tells you not to. Right. It's not just Chris on trial. It's everything he stands for, love, joy, and all the other intangibles and um, she, she and those calls are all him a things child. She doesn't she believe in. That, yeah, because she thinks those are childish things. And she says those intangibles aren't worth very much. That's not how you get ahead. And he's like, it depends on what you mean by getting ahead. Exactly. You no, know, you'll discover those lovely intangibles are the only things that matter. You know? Right. <laughs> like, right. So it's like it really has that conversation really well. Where it's like, yeah, like so, is there a logical and reasonable and material explanation for love and joy and the things that or psychological actually, like, explanation really... as well like yeah, yeah, yeah 
Because that was around this time replacing the spiritual, you know what I mean? Like the, the psychology was this new mm-hmm. thing. That's like, yo, you as your internal self are not this thing that was put in this body by God. You're this thing that's like a bunch of, you know, neuroses that were caused by what happened to you when you were three years old and this happened and that happened. And then you became this per like, that's, that is a, I mean, yeah, materialist, but like psychological materialist, like sort of scientific thing that is replacing the idea of like the soul, you know what I mean? Like believing mm-hmm. in a soul, yeah. like outside of, like, I don't think Freud was all about talking about the soul, like, you know what I mean? It's uh, no, no, in, yeah. in the way that Jesus was, you know, it's, it's a, a different, mm-hmm. a different thing. And it's replacing that thing. And it's an atheist thing, replacing that thing. And like them talking about that then is, yeah, it's, it's, it's very new. Yeah, if you, it, when you really like, when you get into any kind of like philosophical and psychological studies at this point, it's very hard to not be led to the conclusion that there's no soul. Right. And that there's not like, and that the, the dualist perspective is very like uh, unaccepted at this point as, be, as best practice. You know, the idea that there's a body and a soul. Right, right, right. But yeah, there's something there's something missing in the materialist view of things when you really try to like break down uh, consciousness and everything we are in, in in a kind of like materialist scientific way. There's still no answer there, right? You know. And the thing is, I, I think what's interesting about the trial is there's not necessarily answers elsewhere either. But it's the idea of, like, making excuses for no answers. Like, you know what I mean? Like, accepting mm-hmm. Santa in the court is not, like... They didn't prove that he's Santa. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? They didn't, like, be like, well, no, there's a God. And that's, like... They're just kind of like, well, you know, this is... There's enough here that we can kind of say that this... Like, we can let this go and well, legitimize it ends up, this. It, it, it ends up being... It ends up being... Bureaucracy. System. Yeah, bureaucracy. The bureaucracy supports the idea that he's Santa because the post office sent him these letters. Right. And they didn't send those letters because of the kindness of their heart. They were just like, we have a dead letter office filled with fucking Santa letters. It happens every year. And because this one letter came through that actually has a real address on it, let's just send them all there. Right. So we like let somebody he says, let somebody else deal with it. Right. Right. You know? It's like it's not it's it's just like this weird bureaucratic mistake that ends up getting interpreted as like evidence that this person is santa claus like yeah, yeah, yeah. which is just such a bizarre thing it's like oh it's we also, need the system it's also like giant bags so. of the faith of the children of the united states like you know what i mean it's mm-hmm. like it is it is yeah, like yeah. bullshit bureaucracy blah 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 and they don't want to deal with it because there's nowhere to put this but then when it's like well let's just put it on this guy like <laughs> you know what i mean it's like you know people need to believe in something yeah. like let's just like let this jesus thing be you know let's put that on the like the ten commandments let's put it on the courthouse walls that's fine like that's yeah I don't know you know what I mean it's like <laughs> yeah yeah it doesn't it, it doesn't come from a scientific study of you know what would be the greatest profit motive for the country and how could we consolidate the wealth in the way that is the best for the people who like you know I mean that that type of thing was the type of thing that the fucking Nazis did where they're just kind of like oh well here's the way to do it we just 
concentrate all of the suffering into these specific camps and we take all of the wealth from the top 1% and like then everything will be much better for everybody else. You know what I mean? It's like that's scientifically, Mm -hmm. if we just like eliminate this huge group of rich people, like then the rest of it, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you need some sort of spirituality to like say what the Nazis did wrong. Like, you know what I mean? If it's pure science, like... It's like, well, maybe they didn't do their science that well or whatever, but it's like, that's, yeah, that's the big problem with the Holocaust <laughs> they were, was they that were, they didn't do their science they were that well. Or like, they were, they, yeah. they were, you know, they were misinformed about Judaism and that was their problem was that they, they had this scientific idea that it's like, nah, dude, the problem isn't any of that. The problem is that there was nothing holding them back from doing that. Like, you know what I mean? Because, like, mm-hmm. any religious model of the world would be like, no, 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 this is wrong. <laughs> like, we can't, we can't have a society that doesn't have that thing there that's like, well, no, 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 this, we can't, like, we won't do this. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? That doesn't make any sense. I know mm-hmm. that the numbers work out, but, like, that's insane. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I think that if you're going by a purely psychological, like that's, I mean, the Nazis use psychology in their advertising and everything like so early on and stuff. And like, you know, that was Freud was super, you know, depressed about what happened in World War Two and stuff with, you know, the the crowds uh, and the mass psychology of of crowds and shit. But I don't know. I, I think that I think that that's part of this discussion that we're having in like the 40s is kind of like, what is it in America, though? And like the interconnection of capitalism and religion. And like, yeah, we don't necessarily all like take this totally seriously. You know what I mean? Like, especially in the government. Like, I, I don't know how many of the people who yeah, are yeah. in government are really like devout Catholic <laughs> or, or Protestants probably, but like devout anything. Or people who believe in anything at yeah. all. Yeah. Uh, there are people who, you know, will say what they need to say to get to the top and do whatever for profit motives and stuff. But there is still some benefit to all of us, to them too, uh, but to all of us um, for for leaving this sort of non-materialist sort of faith-based thing in our society, um, which allows for actually mm-hmm. beautiful things to happen, but also keeps from like really horrible things from happening. Um, there is some pushback Absolutely. on like yeah, the yeah. idea that like, no, no, the numbers say this. It's like, well, the numbers don't understand that you're not supposed to kill your neighbors <laughs> you know what i mean um so yeah i mean part part of the conversation in this movie is about the specifically the danger of this kind of subjective reality like i mean doris specifically says like uh, when you know when fred brings her to santa claus and stuff doris is upset about it and she says this sets up a very harmful conflict within her you know she'll grow up thinking life is a fantasy not a reality waiting for a Prince Charming to come along, you know? And this is also really represented in um, the actual psychologist that's in the movie, Mr. Sawyer, who's like a total hack psychologist. You know, he's running all these kind of bullshit tests, and Santa Claus actually, like, understands um, Sawyer's psychology better than Sawyer understands his, right. you know, yeah, yeah, based yeah. on, he's like, he's like observing Sawyer and being like, so things, uh, you happy at the home? Like, I feel like that nervous tick you got is because of this or that, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like picking up on these things, but Sawyer is really out to determine 
that he is dangerous because he believes he's Santa Claus, that eventually he's going to snap and he's going to hurt someone, that when his subjective reality breaks, it's going to lead to a mental break. Right. You know? And, and like, I, what's, what's really funny, too, is that, like, when Dr. Pierce is, like, the person who runs the... Um, the home that Chris lives in and he comes and they talk to him and, and he's basically saying like, this guy is harmless. And actually like this entire like idea is harmless. And he brings up Michael Romanoff. Um, he doesn't say his name, but he says there are many with similar delusions. And he mentions a guy who thinks he's a Russian prince who even owns a famous restaurant in LA and he's talking about uh, Romanoffs, okay, which is like a really big like Hollywood socialite spot at that time. Interesting, but, but like Michael Michael Romanoff was like demonstrably not a Romanoff, right? But like believed he was till the day he died. And there's kind of just this question of like, well, let him believe he's a Romanoff. Like, why does this matter? You know, <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, it's it's funny to me that like this movie feels like it's dealing with the psychological concepts that Mad Men tackles. And then the guy who made Mad Men, Matthew Weiner, went on to make the Romanoffs, right. <laughs> which has this psychological component to it as well. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, that um, that, that Michael Romanoff thing definitely connects with the entirety of the Romanoffs. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. We, we um, got to do, do an episode on that someday. Yeah, Mad Men and the Romanoffs. Oh, but. yeah. yeah. But yeah, man, it's like, how dangerous is Chris Kringle? Because the, the, what's beautiful about this movie is all the contradictions it has. Because he actually does attack Mr. Sawyer with his cane later. <laughs> or an umbrella or something. Like, he hits him on the head. He's like, there's only one way to deal with a man like you. Because you're heartless and you have no humanity. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Mr. Sawyer, like, is kind of feigning that it was a lot more... Um, harmful than it really was. Right. Like he pretends to be passed out when they enter the room and stuff. He's really trying to like. He's like, oh, I can use this to my advantage to like get this guy sent away. Right, right. He's like uh, such a cruel and fucked up person because he's just a fraud and he knows he's a fraud in a way that like Chris does. Chris Kringle, Chris doesn't. Yeah, he like really believes he's Santa Claus or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, he really believes he can make miracles happen and he kind of does you know and like the question of whether or not any miracle actually happens in this movie is what's sort of on trial or whatever you know what you can interpret what's really like interesting about chris is that early he says you know that's what i've been fighting for years the commercialization of christmas you know he's like i've been worried about christmas it seems we're all so busy trying to beat the other fellow and making things go faster and look shinier and cost less that christmas and i are getting lost in the shuffle. Christmas isn't just a day, it's a frame of mind. And he calls Doris and Susan a test case. If he can win them over, then there's still hope, you know. Right. Right. Um so it's it's interesting, you know, because we talked about how like essentially what Chris represents is this idea of God or this idea of faith and spirituality. However, all of his tactics seem to be based in materialism and an understanding of psychology and an understanding of, like, you know, scientific principles. Right, right, right. Um, you know, the fact that he understands psychology better than Mr. Sawyer is a big part of it, you know? Yeah. And the fact that you can see that he understands psychology and the way people work well enough to, like, to like you know, manipulate them 
whether he's doing it like intentionally or not, like there's enough information there that shows you he is kind of manipulating people to to get the outcomes. Like totally when they use Thomas Mara's son against him after Thomas Mara Jr. testifies. He goes down to the desk and he says to Santa, don't forget my uh, football helmet or something like that. And he's like, and then he says to him, you're going to get it. And then like right when the trial ends, Thomas Mara is like, I got to go get that football helmet. Right, right. You know, like he's like he's create like whether or not that was actually, you know what I mean? <laughs> like it's another one of those things where like, did he make this happen or did he just like know that he, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. One of those weird things. And then there, the, the other weird like detail I really liked that I that I picked up on was that um, when Santa fails his test on purpose to get put into the um, Bellevue because he feels that he failed and didn't convince Doris because he was under the impression that she had helped Sawyer pull this bait and switch ruse, which is also funny that that was specifically a bait and switch, a psychological ruse. Um, to get him into the car and to get him to go to Bellevue. Right, right. He says to um, Fred that, like, like I think you're the best lawyer since since Darrow. Okay. And, like, I don't know how much you know about Clarence Darrow, but Clarence Darrow is, the, is like, considered the greatest um, lawyer of the 20th century. And he was, um, he was involved in, like, the Leopold and Loeb, Loeb case. Okay. But he was all. But he was also. Um, was he a defense lawyer? Yeah, yeah. Okay. He was. The, he was. The, he was the defense in the Scopes Monkey Trial. Right, right. That's which, was, yeah. As you I know, remember that. Name yeah, yeah. From that one. Mm-hmm. So like the idea that Santa would really respect the guy who is specifically defending the idea of teaching evolution in schools, right, is a contradiction to the idea of believing in God and Santa Claus and whatever, you know? Yeah, but I, um, I think I think what's... I mean, all these things you're talking about, his understanding of psychology, his appreciation of Darrow, all those things, I think a lot of this is like, well, if you were writing this movie, you could write this as, you know, we've got the psychological side of things and we've got the spiritual side of things and psychological side of things is ignorant of the spiritual side and the spiritual side is ignorant of the psychological side. Um, but instead, mm-hmm. you've got it where it's... Basically, like, the psychological side is ignorant of the spiritual side, but the spiritual side knows all that shit, and it doesn't need to be afraid of that because it has faith. And, like, it's, like you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, there's, like, where all of the um, psychological side is afraid of the spiritual side and doesn't want to accept that because there's some sort of fear or, like, when, you, when you're talking about the, the psychiatrist, uh, there's, he knows he's a fraud, um, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> these people with the, the actual faith can actually like embrace all of these ideas and don't have to hide from any ideas or keep their children from seeing any of these ideas or any of that. Because now, now I mean, I don't, I don't know that this is a, you know, Southern evangelical sort of idea of Christianity or whatever, but I, I like this movie's idea of Christianity um, that Santa Claus would respect Darrow and, you know, give a shit about the actual tenets of psychology and like how to actually help people and that sort of thing. Uh, because it doesn't have to be sure, like, yeah, no, yeah. this is, this scare, this destroys my idea of what Jesus is. If there's such thing as psychiatry or like, Oh, this destroys my idea of God. If we were evolved, like, you know what I mean? It's like, nah, that, you know, that's not as strong as the thing that he's already got. Um, whereas, 
if you're if you're a biologist and you're just like you're so ignorant for believing this and blah blah blah, blah it's like well like that's why are you so afraid like you know what i mean like what's the you know what i mean mm-hmm. well I, I i think i would sort of push back on the idea that the spiritual ones are the more um open-minded but i guess we could say like the ones who are dogmatic are not open-minded they are believing in their religious doctrine to the, with the same kind of rigidity that like the hack psychologist is believing in his you know they're also afraid that they're frauds and they don't really understand anything you know i think what we're talking about because like in the scopes monkey trial for instance like the, the people who are unhappy are not the rationalists right. you know it's like it's the it's the religious fundamentalists who are angry about this idea of right, teaching right. evolution they're not being open-minded. Right. They're being very closed-minded. But that doesn't represent all religious people. This opened up a, a rift between fundamentalists and modernists. Right. Modernists who believe that science could be congruent with... Capitalism. And consistent and with religion. religion. Yeah. Well... Or capitalism and that, religion getting along. I mean, not, I mean, in the case of the in the case of the Scopus Monkey Trial, like science and religion. Yeah. Um, yeah. But sure. Furthermore, materialist and capitalist agendas with spiritual ones. Right. And I mean, when we're talking about Scopus Monkey Trial, like that happened in what was it, twenty five, nineteen twenty five. So this predates the fifties and this kind of like Edward Bernays era of like like capitalist psychology. Right. You know. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is interesting because that's that's also about what you tell your kids about, you know, the story of creation, right? Like it's 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 sure, kind of exactly. like you yeah. you've got a mom there who's like, "Don't let my kid hear this crazy shit." Like I I'm, you know, we don't want to tell our kids these these myths about there being ancient monkeys that turned in like it, which is the same thing that she's saying in the beginning of the movie where it's like, "Well, don't teach my kid about Santa Claus. It's these ancient myths." Like, yeah, but I I think that's like there's a role reversal thing there where the, you know, religious zealot is being portrayed as like a a materialist zealot. You know what I mean? And that like in this movie, Santa Claus is not this religious zealot at all. He's the kind of like open minded spiritualist that like can take in all things and, and benefit from all things sort of thing. Um, it's true. So he's like, very balanced. He's very much like the Darrow side of the Scopes Monkey Trial, right? Like, and even though mm-hmm. that's science and this is spirituality, like we're basically talking about like not being afraid of ideas and stuff. Sure. Yeah. It's actually that you make a really good point there about the role reversal and that like being dogmatic right. is really what it's talking about more than specifically believing in this spiritual idea of reality or this materialist idea of reality. It's just the idea that you would be so dogmatically attached to either one. Right. Um, Whereas instead in America, we have this sort of interplay between them in which we kind of leave enough space for that to maybe exist. Um, And people can believe in these things to guide them and that sort of thing. But do we actually see proof of it that we can put up in a court and like not have it be ridiculous? Not really. But like, do we accept these ridiculous <laughs> ideas? Like, yeah, like, you know what I mean? And there's a reason to accept these ridiculous ideas. Like it's, it, you know, even if it's anti 
scientific to think that there was some flood of a million years ago. Like, you know, it's it doesn't matter. There's something that you gain from it in your life uh, as opposed to purely materialist you know, ideas are just like, well, yeah, the, the thing that makes sense is to learn to code and then to, you know, invest in Bitcoin and sit in a cubicle and make millions of dollars uh, based on what like and just what, you know, and then you don't live a life. You just gain capital from some cubicle somewhere. Like, what's the I don't know. Mm-hmm. There needs to be some. Yeah. Like you were saying, there's that whole speech about. You know, those are the things that are the only important things in life, like not just sitting there gaining capital or becoming successful at, you know, Macy's or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, man. No, for sure. It's um, and all the adults in this movie are kind of fooling themselves. Like the, the amount the amount of times the idea of honesty and truth come up in this movie. It's also interesting, like how, how often characters say, like, I want to be honest or truthful or like I, I, I try to be an honest and truthful man. Like, this comes up a lot. Like, I mean, Shellhammer, like, says, I believe in being truthful with people. And that's, like, he says that to Mr. Sawyer as they're plotting to, like, bait-and-switch Santa to, to, like, go to Bellevue. And it's like, what do you mean you always believe in being truthful with people? You literally, like, this whole movie have been, like, playing this weird political game. Shellhammer's the guy who, like, initially hires uh, Chris to be Santa. Right. Or like convinces Doris to hire him, right. and he's like, and he and he goes up to Santa in the locker room and is like, so these are the toys you need to push on people, right? You know, and like when Santa starts to like direct people to to other stores and stuff, they don't admit that that was not their idea right. and stuff like that. You know, like yeah, exactly. like every step of the way, like they're playing politics and they're not being honest and truthful. And it's like, well, this whole idea that you guys are rational truthful, honest people is kind of all just a facade. Right. You know? It all falls apart as soon as you actually look at any of these situations. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you are you're all operating on these weird, like, complexes, psychological complexes. That was the other thing I really liked was that reminds me of the whole thing. You know, like the uh, janitor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how, like, Mr. Sawyer is inventing, like, complexes and phobias, like a guilt complex. And he's like, I don't even know where it comes. He's like, you know, he says it has something to do with my childhood or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? He's it's like, I like, hate my father, yeah. but, like, I never thought that I before. I hate my father. But he yeah, told yeah, me exactly. I hated my father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, that, and, and, it's like, and it's like, but isn't what Chris is doing, like, kind of similar to that in some way? Like, planting these seeds and these ideas in people's heads so that they'll, like eventually come around to doing something like i don't know there's like a there's like a weird like blurred line there between what santa's doing and his understanding of psychology and then what the heck mr sawyer is doing like inventing these phobias that he can cure or whatever yeah 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 but i don't know i guess santa is finding real He's trying to solve, like, a real problem as opposed to, like, inventing a problem he can solve. Right, right. I mean, the psychologist Um, is trying to legitimize his own thing. He's trying mm -hmm. to legitimize his place in the world or whatever through being like, well, I am the expert and I can tell you that this is the thing that you have. And, you know, whereas Santa, Mm -hmm. not really interested in legitimacy at all. He is going into court and saying, yes, I believe I am Santa Claus. Like, he doesn't care that people don't take (laughs) him seriously. That's not part of it. Um, True. You're right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and the psychiatrist, that's the only part of it. Uh, and, you know, I mean, maybe maybe in, you know, 
there might have been some motivation for him to help people at some point or whatever. But at that point in psychiatry, like we're so it's it's a new thing in a level that's like it's like when medicine was invented, we didn't <laughs> like it's only a couple, a couple hundred years ago we got soap. You know what I mean? Like. <laughs> psychiatry is like so new that like we're talking what like 30 years into the field like it's it's pseudoscience like it's you know they're still figuring yeah, it out yeah, and it's, sure. it's like largely about like i mean freudian psychiatry like the like freudian analysis and stuff like that that like that's so much less about helping people and so much more about like how interesting it is to discover these things about people, which tells us about ourselves and whatever. Like it's, they were not curing people. Like they were not really interested in that. They were very much about like yeah. bringing out trauma and like, m you know, mining it. And I mean, that's kind of Freudian psychiatry versus behaviorism in general. It's just kind of like, you can go back to your childhood and you can look at all of these things and be like, is this the thing that made me this way? Is this the thing and whatever? And it's very interesting. And like, if I was going to be a psychiatrist, I'd probably, you know, as a selfish piece of shit, love to be a Freudian psychiatrist because I could just like, you know, get into people's heads and really understand what it is that makes them tick and blah, blah, blah. But that's not going to help anybody. You know what I mean? It's just kind of like, yeah, yeah, I know sure. why I'm an asshole and it's because of this and this and this. So, like, that's why I'm an <laughs> asshole. Like, or that's why I'm always going to be miserable. Or, like, that's why... <laughs> it's like, knowing that doesn't help you. It's interesting for the psychiatrist, sure. Uh, but the only mm -hmm. way to help you is to be like, yo, that doesn't matter. How about uh, not being an asshole? <laughs> like, that's... Step one sure. is, like, let's try not to be an asshole. Instead of, like, step one is let's, like, discover and legitimize, like, the idea of your incurable assholery. <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Um yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, I don't know. So even though it could be, even though you can view the movie in kind of cynical terms, I kind of choose not to. I think even though I would take a realist perspective of the movie, which is just he's not really Santa Claus, like there is actually no such person, but, like, that it doesn't matter, that the belief and faith in this idea is more powerful than the reality itself, and that, like, that intersubjective faith creates very real things that are, are tangible and whatever. And ultimately I do think that like Chris is a person with a good heart who really does want to help people make the world a better place, fill it with more joy and love and compassion and all these things, you know? Right. Right. I think zeroing in on the scene where he teaches Susan how to use her imagination and be like a monkey is kind of like the cornerstone Mm -hmm. That like that's the that's the thing that really like you have the hack psychologist who's trying to say interesting that he would make her be a monkey too. Now that now that you brought yeah, up exactly, Dara, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is yeah, very exactly. it's a very concise movie. Sorry, continue. Mm -hmm. No, 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 no. You're right. I didn't even think of that. But um, you're right. Why a monkey specifically? Yeah. Exactly. It's like it's like what do you mean? It's like because like you don't even actually have to use your imagination that hard to imagine being a monkey because you're so closely related to it. You right, know? Like, right, right. I mean, he says monkey. I mean, monkey and ape, more like an ape. But still, the idea of, like, being a... Like, they're both just mammals and that, like... I mean, at that time, we were a lot less enlightened. Uh, we used a lot of racial slurs, and sometimes we called apes monkeys. So that might just be... Yeah, that, no, you're right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's, it's just a product of the time. It was a product you know, of the time. They called them monkeys. They really meant ape, I, you know. 
They should put a they should put a trigger warning at the beginning <laughs> right. of this movie. Warning: There's in the forties, people were much more ignorant about the difference between apes and monkeys and uh, the opposable thumb <laughs> situation. So they mm-hmm. they misuse the term monkey at a certain point in this film. Just but yeah, it really is like it, it's such a depressing idea that you would be like you could make the argument that like building this whole fantasy Santa Claus reality and then like having that taken away from the child is traumatic and harmful. But like there's also something just as sad, if not more sad than a child who doesn't know how to use their imagination, you know? Yeah. Like she's like, she can't make friends because of it. She was like, I went down there and they, and the kids were playing and they were, they were saying like, are you a monkey? What kind of animal are you? And she's like, and, she, and the idea that she like is too dense and realist to understand that is so sad. Yeah, like, yeah, you're a yeah. kid. You should be pretending to be a monkey. Oh, yeah. And like the idea that he has to like teach her how to do this, it's like really heartwarming, but also really sad. And like you really do feel like, oh, he's actually doing something good here. Like this is, this is not a harmful thing for her to pretend to be a monkey. Like, this is yeah. actually good for her. Yeah. This is like... <laughs> she, like, you know, needs to. Um, Otherwise, she's going to turn into Greta Thunberg or something. Loving science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. It's like a hysterical and, um, artist who's, like, screaming about mm-hmm. that everything is reality and whatever. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No imagination. Yeah. And there is a serious... Yeah, there's a serious, like, crisis of imagination in our world. Like, the inability to imagine a better world or anything that isn't just, like, doom profiteering and, and like, about realist projections of things. Totally, um, totally. I mean, we live in a very atheistic society. Yeah, just destroy yourself and trust the science and don't have children. And, you know... Right, because children are pollution. kind of, like... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're pollution. And the world... Uh... But I think this... this I think this... Um, I like how he describes the imagination as a as a separate place that exists all by itself. Mm-hmm. And so I thought maybe this would be a good way to segue into our talks about Neverland oh, and yes. whatever. Oh, yes. But do you want to um, take a quick pee break? Yeah. Okay, cool. Back from the break. Welcome back. So I was saying, imagination, Neverland, uh, a good segue point to go from Miracle into Hook. Um, when I when I watched Miracle um, recently, it was like the first time I'd ever really like watched Miracle. Even though I do remember seeing it as a kid or like seeing parts of it as a kid or something like that, I had some memories of it, but. This is the first time I really felt like I actually watched Miracle and kind of got into it. And for whatever reason, as I was watching Miracle, I couldn't stop thinking about Hook. Um, and I hadn't even watched Hook recently. And it made me, it kind of started to dawn on me this idea that Hook is a Christmas movie and that it like is dealing with a lot of the same themes as Miracle. And I wonder how intentional it is. I kind of wonder how much Spielberg was, like, intentionally drawing from Miracle. Right. And and even, like, It's a Wonderful Life, for instance, which I watched not too long after Hook and started to feel like, oh, there's actually a lot of moments in It's a Wonderful Life that 
kind of like rhyme with hook as well. Definitely. So. Definitely. I mean, I think, I think that's kind of the idea of what is a Christmas movie um, in the, in the like tradition yeah. of Christmas movies. Like even when we talk about die hard is die hard, a Christmas movie sort of thing. Um, there are themes that all of these movies are all kind of talking about. Um, mm-hmm. Die Hard, Miracle on 34th Street, uh, It's a Wonderful Life, and Hook, um, and plenty more. Like you know what I mean? But but there's yeah yeah, yeah for sure. there's a specific thing that all of these movies are talking about. That's kind of this. I mean, I, I think at least Miracle and um, It's a Wonderful Life. There's definitely this capitalism versus like material versus non-material value uh, thing mm-hmm. going on. And the holiday time and the spirit of charity and all that sort of stuff and spirituality and those sort of values, I think, is something that all these movies kind of really get into. Die Hard, too, is like very much, you know, a, a movie about capitalism and the evils of <laughs> the, the big money people. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, think, I think Hook definitely is on a lot of those same subjects, too. And that's kind of what, like when you're thinking about is it a Christmas movie, is it not? Like, I guess it doesn't actually specifically, like, mention Christmas at any point, does it? Maybe in the very beginning? But I don't think it does. I think it's just that they're going over there for the holidays, right? Like... They're not going over there for the holidays. The holiday so season. It, it, it actually... This movie did come out in early December, so it was definitely released during the holiday season. So at the very beginning of the movie... Peter Banning and his wife Moira and their son Jack are all watching a stage play of Peter Pan that um, his daughter Maggie is performing in, and she's playing Wendy. Um, You can see in the background that there are Christmas trees. Right. And then when they go to to England to visit Wendy, the house is um, undoubtedly decked. Decorated for Christmas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is decorated for Christmas, absolutely. The other thing is, like, traditionally Peter Pan, the stage performance, was a Christmas performance. It was generally right, right. done around Christmas time. So, and and I guess, like, you know, the, the themes in Peter Pan of growing up and the difference between being a child and being an adult are, like, a big part of Christmas, at right. least. Right, and definitely connected to Miracle on 34th Street, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They felt like interesting movies to pair, um, also because of this idea of intersubjective reality. We are kind of dealing with a main character who literally forgot who he was. And not only that, but who he was was kind of this fantastical, mythical character. Um, Peter Banning, like, not believing that he's Peter Pan and his journey to believing that he's Peter Pan kind of mirrors the the dynamics in Miracle on 34th Street. Um, it's, it's, it's slightly different because, like, if we're going to compare Peter Panning and um, Chris Kringle, Chris Kringle believes he's Santa Claus, and it's about, like, bringing everyone along with him on that intersubjective journey. Whereas this is kind of the opposite, which is that, like, Santa Claus doesn't believe he's Santa Claus, but everybody is, like, saying he is. (laughs) Right, right. Um, And it's about him having to, like, you know, come around to the belief that he is Peter Pan. Right. Um, I mean, he's he's both Chris Gringle and and the little girl. What's her name? Uh, Natalie Wood. mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So he has to learn to believe, but he also is the thing that he's believing in. Exactly, yeah. 
And so, I mean, the, but the reason they go to England is because Wendy is having the ent- an entire wing of a um, children's hospital dedicated to her. Right. So, like, they're not even going there for Christmas or for the holidays. It just so happens to be Christmas. Right. It's the type of event um, that you would have around the holidays, I guess, or something. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. But, like, Christmas is never mentioned. They never, they're never obvious about it. That's really weird because, like, I, I, I mean, I even just watched it and that didn't even stand out to me. I just kind of assumed that it was Christmas time. They were up there for, like, this thing that's not Christmas, but they're going to be there for the holidays. Like, that's why they're off school. That's mm-hmm. why they're there. Like, and... Yeah, but it actually never is mentioned. That's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's like, it's it's there. It's like part of its DNA. But then also, you know, thematically, like you said, this idea of belief, you know, and believing in something and the sort of subjective reality having a lot of power over reality and this whole thing of how Peter Banning, like you were saying Miracle and It's a Wonderful Life both kind of deal with this thing of spirituality and materialism and that's very much the core like struggle of what peter banning is going through he is a person who's been completely consumed by realism and materialism and specifically Um, neoliberalism i think i think that he's he's become a neoliberal and that's kind of the point Mm -hmm. his job is the most sort of he's a lawyer you know but like what does he do like some sort of corporate he's a corporate lawyer yeah Yeah, he's a corporate lawyer Um, so he's just like, I mean, this is in the tradition of Spielberg, but like generally the lawyers, it is, I mean, if you remember Jurassic Park, like he doesn't have that much respect for the blood sucking lawyers, (laughs) you know what I mean? No, Um, he doesn't. And he's definitely being presented as like the worst possible type of job. Like this is, Mm -hmm. you have become, and they do say it, Peter, you're a pirate. Like that's, you know, yeah, yeah. even when his son describes his job, it's like, he just goes in and he takes over the ship and you know what I mean? He like describes it as a pirate. He blows him out of the water. It's it's very much like any resistance, any resistance and he blows him away. Exactly. Exactly. And I, (laughs) I feel like it really connects to me with, um, the beginning of, uh, the meaning of life, Monty Python's meaning of life, the opening, Mm -hmm. um, uh, short that Terry Gilliam does with the corporate pirates. You remember that one? Oh yeah, you're right. Where they're like, it's a bunch of you know, it's a corporate merger or whatever with these two corporations. One's taking over another, so it's the the pirates of Wall Street swinging in and taking over. You know, but he portrays it as like the buildings are actually their ships and the buildings. You yeah, know, yeah, and they're shooting filing in cabinets into yeah, the windows. Exactly, and they're like stabbing each other with those like things that you put receipts on. Those stabby things, but like, <laughs> yeah, they turn those yeah. into swords. It's like, but it is. It's a it's a corporate pirate you know thing and i'm sure there's like a word mm-hmm. for that like that i don't know i feel like you refer to these guys as pirates like i feel like that was probably around mm-hmm. in the 80s just like this idea of you know pirate corporation takeover stuff and this movie totally utilizes that um sort of a yeah, because it's often done by force it's because of like the power dynamics that one corporation is able to take over another exactly it is by force i've also been um watching succession and that like comes up a lot is like oh, this yeah, idea yeah. that like you know when these mergers and acquisitions happen it's generally not like some kind of nice consensual agreement right it's usually like because of like power struggles and one gets the dirt on the other or offers a bigger sum of money and it's kind of done by force and there's not really another option because the alternatives are generally like your company will go under or they'll become your enemy and make it very difficult for you to exist and like all these things. Right. Right. 
It's a cutthroat um, industry. Right? Just like cut just like piracy. Industry. Just like piracy. Yeah, exactly. I really, really love the concept of this movie. You know, I mean it's such a simple idea. Like what if Peter Pan grew up and became and sold out. And sold out, yeah. But it ends up being like in a way, it ends up talking about the original concepts that the book Peter Pan does, but like in a way that I actually personally feel like has more weight. Um, I actually like read Peter Pan for the first time. Okay. This past couple of weeks. Um, How was it? I really want it. It was okay. Like I, I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to understand like what the text was, the original story and stuff, and like think about that as as compared to Hook and the original, um, not the original, but the the Disney movie, which. You know, the the Disney version of Peter Pan became such a definitively accepted version of Peter Pan that, like, Hook was actually the next film version to happen. Right. There was, like, a good, like, 40-something years between them. Mm-hmm. Um, and since Hook, there's been, like, a million, but none of yeah, them. And since Hook, nobody likes any of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've not seen any, but... It, it's weird because, like, Hook is considered to be, like, one of the biggest Spielberg flops or whatever like biggest spielberg failures and it's a movie that he's even openly talked about being disappointed with and whatever right um but at the same time it's it's a very like talked about movie like people know about hook people have seen hook and there's actually a lot of love for it when you like when you actually talk to like real human beings about it (laughs) you know like you'll find a you'll find a not not to say people don't like hook or unreal but there's 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 like a there is a love for Hook that exists out there that's not very represented. Yeah, well, I mean, um, I think I think that for a while, I mean, specifically in our generation, right? Like, I'm like what 35. Like the the for the millennial generation, I think that Hook was something that we all watched as kids and just like loved. Like, you know what I mean? It was just like part of the childhood thing or whatever. And then like a lot of us grew up and kind of got over the Spielberg thing. Uh, you know what I mean? And yeah. I think that that's kind of, you know, when you start to get pretentious and become an adult and want to watch adult movies and that sort of thing, like, you you want to distance yourself from things like Spielberg that probably were the things that got you into film in the first place or something, like, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. when you were a kid. Yeah, yeah. And you want to show that you're somehow, you know, more developed and better or whatever. And, and there's a certain hipsterish hate of of that sort of thing and i I think that a lot of it is like like i i think that a lot of it is that just just like a response to how loved it was and so now people are like it was actually really shitty and you were just a kid and it's like you you remember it as good but like if you go back and rewatch it it's actually just like stupid and shitty and you just yeah you're 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 immature so you're idealizing the things from your childhood and you want to live in your childish world of things where Hook is a great movie and whatever, but really, like, if you were an adult about it, you would know that it's just shitty. Uh, even Spielberg said it was you know, embarrassing or something. Like, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's like, but that's just not true. Like, the thing is, like, Hook is a very, very, like, I mean, it's very representative of Spielberg. And the thing is, like, I think that it's also representative of what Spielberg is criticized for. Like, if you look at all of Spielberg's Mm -hmm. movies, Hook is probably, like, the most representative of, like, that thing that people think of as, like, his immature, like, the Peter Pan syndrome thing. Him, like, making, you know, Mm -hmm. these things for adult children and whatever, and him being obsessed with these childish things and whatever, and not wanting to grow up and just keep making, you know 
cartoons for, you know, man children or whatever. <laughs> like, I guess it's less man children, mm-hmm. just children when, you know, this was happening. But I think that those those criticisms, like, are all represented by this movie. Like, this is Spielberg oh, totally, yeah, yeah. like, making that, that statement um, that people criticize him of always making. It's like, but no, nah, he didn't really always make that. He really only did it in this movie. And I think in this movie, he did it in, like, a really weird and interesting and nuanced way. And so, like, mm-hmm. I don't I don't think a lot of that criticism is super valid. Um, but I do think that, like, well, I, I think that, like, Spielberg in the culture, like, it, it's, this is the first Spielberg movie we've talked about or whatever. But I think that in the culture, there is a thing of, like, hating Spielberg. You know what I mean? Like, when you start to get mm-hmm. to a point where you're, like, looking at more interesting, deeper, more nuanced movies that have, like, dark themes and subjects and whatever, like, you don't you don't think of Spielberg movies as the height of cinema anymore. And like Mm -hmm. at a certain point, like when I went to film school or whatever, I kind of was just like, okay, Spielberg is just like a, you know, slick commercial director giving showing fairy tales to kids and whatever. And like, he's not that deep. It's just kind of this like surface level capitalist cash in like, you know, popcorn bullshit. You know what I mean? For, for mass audiences, he's the most successful director of all time. And that's, it's because he's just a, you know, cheap cash in guy that's really good at making a spectacle mm-hmm. but i i like you know a couple of years ago whatever i kind of went back and was watching a bunch of his movies um and really found that not to be the case i think that a lot of his movies are a lot deeper and a lot more nuanced than people give him credit for um and they're for sure. you know really to be interpreted the way that you would interpret like a kubrick movie or like a great art film and stuff it's just that he's you know putting that in something that actually can get to mass audiences. And that's, I think, really powerful. Like, that's one of the things that's so powerful about Kubrick is that, like, he could make these movies that are incredibly subversive and, like, talking about these crazy subjects in, like, the weirdest ways, but still, like, everybody wants to see them and watches them over and over. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like he makes these huge movies for, you know, the whole population, not just for, you know, this niche that can actually understand them. But there is just a niche that can actually understand them. And like, he's getting this message out like to everybody so that like, you know, the small percentage that's actually looking at it, like can get something out of it. And also like, I think that a lot of the ideas and nuances of Spielberg's movies get in under the radar, like specifically when you're talking about kids, like watching movies, like how do you like build Mm -hmm. your world in the postmodern reality? Like, you, you like watch movies and things or whatever, like especially like today, kids of today who just like don't go out and play anymore and just sit like they need to be watching stuff that's building a nuanced reality for them as opposed to, you know, weird YouTube videos mm-hmm. or something. And like Spielberg's movies, while they're like totally a super stimulus that little kids would love to look at, like they also like get under the radar these like nuanced discussions of like what it is to be like a you know, a person and stuff. And like in this movie specifically, like what we should value, like, you know what I mean? As we grow up. And that's like an important thing to get in there under the radar to kids. Like what, like who is the bad guy in this movie and who is the good guy? Like, I, I think, I think what he ends up talking about is, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that, I think that like a lot of that nuanced stuff that I'm talking about, like is something that like kind of gets lost in this cynical discussion of Spielberg. And like, I I think that around the time that we went to film school and stuff back in like 2008, that was probably, that was around the time that Crispin Glover um, put out this whole essay kind of attacking Steven Spielberg. Um, And I like, for me, like, I think that this was part of my sort of like 
movement away from Spielberg or whatever was reading kind of this like hardcore attack on Spielberg and kind of being like, oh, yeah, it feels cool to be like, oh, shit, like, fuck this whole culture. Like, Spielberg sucks. Like, this culture is bullshit popcorn stuff and whatever. And like, it's uh, what's interesting is like Crispin Glover's essay. It's like an Internet conspiracy theory like crazy attack on Spielberg where like he he like at one point he's like would Columbine have happened if Spielberg hadn't like poisoned the like country with his bullshit like <laughs> you know what I mean he like blames him for Columbine he blames him for like the death of the little girl in um Poltergeist who died like six months later and he like yeah, he yeah. basically accuses him of pedophilia as well he's got to like yeah, why is yeah. he so interested in these little kids and one of the things that he brings up is like why did he have little kids finger painting on the adult Peter Pan in in the Hook movie. You know what I mean? Isn't that Mm -hmm. a pedophile's fantasy and blah, blah, blah. It's like, I I think that it's pretty easy as a cynical sort of teenager or whatever to just be like, yeah, fuck this. This is a weird pedophile cult shit. Like, what what was this movie even talking about? Like, it was just, and he he was even embarrassed. Like, fuck this movie. And and then just like not go back to it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But, well, I think like, you know, Crispin Glover's essay, which it's called, uh, it's called What Is It? And it's kind of it's he's not making any accusations in the essay. The whole essay is written as a series of questions. So he's just like, would Columbine have ever happened if Steven Spielberg hadn't poisoned the country with his bullshit? (laughs) Would this girl have actually died if she wasn't on this? Like, why did Steven Spielberg cover children in shit in Schindler's List? Was that a pedophile thing? (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? It's like it's very like um, it's it's crazy. It's insane um, writing. And and like it's a it's like a fun read because I like reading crazy people's rants. Um, but I, mm-hmm. but I also like think that it's wrong. I, I think that Crispin Glover is not understanding the nuances of what Spielberg's talking about in these movies. Um, and while like I think that he he does you know discuss pedophilic topics uh, specifically in Hook, and I think you know that's that's part of it. I just don't think that Crispin Glover got the whole message out of it. I think it's kind of like how people talk about. I don't really want to get into this too much, but 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 Saving Private Ryan, the, the attack on Saving Private Ryan for being like a, you know, warmongering fascist movie sort of thing is like, well, I think that a lot of these people yeah, have yeah. like legitimate points when they're making that argument. Um, but I think that the point is that he's commenting on those points. And that's, you know what I mean? That these people haven't taken enough steps to understand that this is part of a tradition of filmmaking that is propaganda filmmaking. And he's making a propaganda film to comment on propaganda in this way. Like, but let's not talk too much about that. (laughs) We'll get to that some other time. But I think that similarly, like there's stuff in, in hook that I think is weird and creepy, but I don't think Mm -hmm. that that means that Spielberg is part of some sort of elite pedophile ring of evil Jews who are eating children. Like, you know what I mean? (laughs) I I, I think that it's like, he's talking about the things that those people are like the people who write those conspiracies are also interested in. And those ideas, like, I don't know. I think he's talking about much more subversive ideas than people give him credit for, as opposed to like his subversive tendencies are coming through. You know what I mean? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, his his interest in children and childhood, it's, like, very easy to... I mean, I think Bill Burr even had, like, a whole sketch about how, like, I love children, but you can't fucking play with them anymore and stuff like that. <laughs> you know, like, there's... Okay. Um, That's pretty funny. You, you don't remember that one? No, no. You did that? It's like, you're just like, yeah, I love kids. They're fun. They're fun to play with. But you can't just, like, go play with any kids anymore. They're going to think you're a fucking pedophile. You, know? you can't just, like, talk to a kid at the park. Right, right. Or whatever. 
Um, remember, remember when we were when we were at that park recently? We were hanging out, and then I was like, "Oh, I want to go check out. Like, look at that fucking whole crazy swing set." And I like walked over to check it out, and it's like, "Oh, I'm just like a single guy in my 30s wandering up to a swing set. I should go back to this group." It was like a crazy looking swing set. I was just like, "What the fuck have they got here?" But it's like, "No, you can't, mm-hmm. you can't do this. <laughs> like, you should probably go back to your friends." Yeah, the the culture that we've created around protecting children is is like kind of detrimental to some degree. You know, like most people aren't actually sexually interested in children, but like most like human people who like making human connections kind of like enjoy the, you know, presence of children. And I think like hook really does speak about that. Like this whole idea of retaining your childhood and having Peter Pan syndrome. I mean, you know, he was also famously friends with Michael Jackson, who was like fucking obsessed with the Peter Pan story. Right. Well, and and the Peter Pan story itself is written by a weird pedophile, right? He's not a pedophile, but I mean, no, he's just he is a he's an, it's like another thing where it's like the J M Barry thing is like very connected to the Michael Jackson and Steven Spielberg thing because like they've all sort of had these accusations leveraged on them that they were like interested in children in pedophilic ways even though there's no, like, cold, hard proof, you know? Um, okay. I mean, like, J.M. Barry, like, you know, was the first to have Peter Pan syndrome because he wrote the book, you know? And when you read Peter Pan, it really comes off as something written by a child. Like, it has a very child logic sort of flow to it that actually makes it sort of a frustrating read. Okay. It's a very, like, narrator-aware book where, like, the narrator and the people listening to the story are all, like, there. Like, he, he'll say, like, we now go to the window and see what Miss Darling is up to or, like, or, like, asking questions to the audience. Like, do we think that Captain Hook is blah, blah, blah or whatever? You know, like, it'll... Right, right, right. It has a very, like, this is story time with J.M. Barry vibe and, like, that it's... It doesn't have like doesn't like get into the internal reality of the characters as much as the internal reality of J.M. Barry, you know. Right. But like J.M. Barry met the Davies boys and the Davies family at one point, and like I think he was married at that time, but he was like in a really like loveless, unhappy marriage. And I think he was like a he was like an asexual or something. Like he didn't actually have sex. Like his lack of having sex with his wife was one of the biggest problems of their relationship. And, like, they eventually divorced and he never remarried. So he's never had a good relationship with marriage or relationships or women. Um, And he always has had this kind of Peter Pan syndrome where, like, he just wanted to remain... He always just felt like a little boy who never grew up. But didn't he also physically, like, have something, too? Like, where he actually didn't grow up? Um, That I don't know. Like, Like he looked like an adult child or something? Like he... I don't know. Like a Jack thing. Yeah, I don't know. No, I'm not sure about that, but okay, maybe I'm but wrong. I, I, I do know that like that like his relationship with the Davies boys was like you know odd to some degree because he's like a full grown man and he's like playing with these kids and not, they're not his kids or anything like that. But he eventually adopts them. Like you know their parents died and then he adopted hmm. all the Davies boys Weird. and then you know at some point um, I think John like died in the war. In like World War One, and then Michael died not too long after in what was suspiciously 
looked like a suicide pact between him and his friend because they both died at the same time and drowned in this lake or something like that. Hmm. And okay. like, and ever since then, Barry like, like was broken. He never really wrote anything again. And you know, but like, it's dark. The there was never any foul play reported. Like I think the accusations of like a pedophilic nature were brought up because he was a known person and Peter Pan was successful and like people had already kind of like zeroed in on like this is kind of weird that you like hang out with these kids all the time right and that you like <laughs> right. adopted them and like did it, did anything weird happen and like all the Davies boys say like no there was never anything weird or pedophilic in our relationship he was mm-hmm. just like he was a friend and a father and like I don't know so so it's, it's it, like so yeah the Jay and Barry thing is weird and Peter Pan really is this very personal story for Jay and Barry and really does represent him and his whole kind of crisis of being a child in a man's body or whatever and the way that transfers over to like Michael Jackson and his Neverland Ranch and his whole interest in like remaining a child when he had been traumatized as a child by his family in the similar way that Jay and Barry was experiencing the death of his brother at such a young age. Um, and that like Steven Spielberg is also kind of like a, a man with a sort of traumatized youth in which he continues to talk about like the magic of his childhood and the complications with his family, specifically the dad in a lot of his movies. So, you know, right. that you'll see that as a reoccurring theme in Spielberg, which is very much here in Hook, is this like father-son conflict where the, where the son is sort of drifting further and further away from the father because of how work-obsessed and material-obsessed the father is. Right. You know, you could say that that goes back to like Spielberg's relationship with his father, who right. was like a computer guy who got into IBM and whatever. And right, he portrayed as basically artistic in the Fablemans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you could say that it also reflects what Steven Spielberg himself was going through when he made Hook. I mean, he was like he like had just gone through a divorce right. with his first wife, who he had um, his first son with. Mm-hmm. And there was probably a part of Spielberg. I mean, people will like say this is Steven Spielberg's midlife crisis movie in a way that's like um, a criticism against it, right? Right. That, like you know, but I think it's actually like a really amazing feature. Um, yeah, it is a, main, a midlife crisis movie, like completely. <laughs> you know, it's like a movie where he's like, "Am I a kid? Am I an adult? Like, I have a son of my own. I just went through this divorce. Like, how do you keep a family together? Like." I, am I like a work obsessed asshole who doesn't pay attention to his kids? And like, how do I retain my wonder and my I mean, my faith? In the beginning, when he when um, he's introduced, he's wearing like a Spielberg hat, like cap thing going on. He like yeah, he yeah, totally he looks like he's playing mm-hmm. Spielberg. Um, no, for sure he does. And I I, I would um, I would say like his performance too like has a Spielberginess to it. Like there's there's a certain mm-hmm. I don't know. It's not as it's not as much of a it's not like the Fableman's kid or anything, but there's, I don't know, oftentimes the lead actors are doing a bit of a impression of the director in some, in some way. But I think that in, in this movie, like Spielberg made that happen. You know, that's like, that's, that's like a choice in, you know, in the wardrobe and everything. No, for sure. I do think Spielberg is heavily relating to the character of Peter Banning and yeah. 
yeah, that, that is all part of it. And that that makes it weirder and to some degree, yeah, because like you said, there is the thing of him getting, like, finger-painted by children and this whole, like, weird fantasy of, like, being around children and then, like, becoming one again and, like, reconnecting with your childhood self and your, your childhood sense of wonder. Right. But this is all just, like, so baked into it, you know? Even if Spielberg isn't, like, completely aware of it, like, everything you were saying about people's, like hate on this movie or like in a a lot of ways it is this like litmus test you know right like talking about it as spielberg like a really representative of this thing that people don't like about spielberg and talking about how like most of us saw when we were kids and that's part of the reason why it was so powerful or whatever there there is something about this movie where like when you're watching it it feels like this litmus test where you're either like a callous cold-hearted adult who just thinks it's all like saccharine bullshit or like you have a childhood sense of wonder that actually like deeply connects to these ideas of belief and faith and like intersubjective reality and imagination that are incredibly important, you know? No, totally. Um, Totally. But I I also think that a lot of this is this generational thing, right? When we're talking about it being about Spielberg or, you know, Pan being another Spielberg, we're talking about like a baby boomer generation, sort of situation, right? Okay, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And like, specifically. I think, like, we can talk about this as adults and kids and whatnot, and I think that that plays into it, specifically in the way that Pan interacts with the kids versus the way that Hook interacts with the kids, and we can we can talk about that. But I think that a lot of what he's doing as far as being surrounded by these people and reconnecting with them is talking about, like, a revisitation of his youth. And, like, what was mm-hmm. his youth was, like, the 60s, you know what I mean? And that was a time when yeah, there was yeah. these ideals, and we thought that there was something beyond neoliberalism that could, you know, bring about, like, a better world or something, you know what I mean? There was some reason to fight against these pirates as opposed to just become one and stuff. And it, the reconnection with that, I think, is kind of, like, the main, I don't know, maybe not the main focus, but a big, big part of this movie. Um We're kind of looking at like a modern neoliberal American boomer who has sold out for Nikes and whatever and like weight Mm -hmm. loss things and fat jeans and whatever. And they're looking back at like, okay, well, what have I become? Like, what is the world that I've built? And like, what values do I have? And now that I'm looking at like my kids, like as the boomers would be, you know what I mean? It's like, what values am I passing on to them? And that, like, that's like, I, mm-hmm. I now need to look at myself and see, like, oh, I've actually sold out on all of the things that I would actually want to pass on to them. And that's like the beginning of the movie, you see, like, he's just trying to pass on all this shit to his son about, like, grow up and be, you know, whatever. How are you ever going to, like, get a fucking corporate job if you keep being a kid and whatever? And he's like, I am a kid. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? And then yeah, he like, yeah. gives him this watch <laughs> and stuff. It's all about, like, an adult, like, there, there, there's there's so I mean, much the watch about watches and, and time like, in this movie. Yeah, time, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I think a lot of that has to do with just like, well, part of it has to do with the way that you're spending your time and whatnot and the time that he's not spending with his kid and that sort of thing. But I think that the obsession with the watches and whatever is also like an, an obsession with like a material reality thing and like the idea of Neverland being this place that exists outside of time. And that, like, he's trying to be like, no, you need to, you know, grow up and there's this time passing, whatever. It's like, no, Neverland is this fantasy world that exists outside of that. And you don't need to be, you know, obsessed with all of this clocks and time and rules and Mm -hmm. regulations and growing up and all that sort of stuff. 
Yeah, um, I mean, when you when you when you say the stuff about the '60s, I think like even though the original Peter Pan is about the dynamic of um, childhood and growing up, it doesn't ever really get um, formatted as this idea of culture versus counterculture. Right. Um, I mean, like Mr. Darling is presented as a character who is very stressed out and because of money. Mm-hmm. Like the whole beginning of the book, he's basically like calculating how reasonable it is to have a child, like in mathematical terms. Like nothing is about how emotionally beautiful it might be to have a child or any of these things. It's just like Mr. Darling crunches the numbers and says this isn't like feasible to have a kid, but then they continue to have like three three or four kids, you know, like Mm -hmm. uh, I guess three kids, right? Yeah, three kids. And it's like Mr. Darling is most represented by Peter Banning in Hook. You know, it's the idea that like Peter has become a Mr. Darling who is kind of just like only concerned about the bottom line and money and like making this billion dollar deal go through or whatever it is. But, but Hook but Hook in the book is never representative of the same thing Peter Darling is? Hook, I mean they are in a way, but like Hook isn't Hook isn't portrayed as being someone who's concerned about economics or money, but he's still portrayed as like a pitiable adult who's incredibly insecure and stressed out. Okay. Like Peter Pan and like the thing the thing about like Barry's original book is that it like actually does have a lot of sympathy for the adult characters. They're pitiable and like because they're just like so sad and miserable, you yeah. know, like what what they have to deal with and they completely envy the children for right. for like having the freedom that they do and stuff like that. Like Hook just like really envies Peter Pan. That's like all it is, you know. Right, he he right. wants to be Pan. Hook Hook has to like work so hard to do what just comes so naturally to Peter, you right. know, which is to be like a leader and you know, someone that like has strength that people can follow. Right. Whatever. Like Peter Pan is like a completely ambivalent character who's actually kind of shitty and heartless. And yeah. even like Totally amoral. Totally a- not immoral. Totally amoral, amoral though. Like amoral. Doesn't have morality. Barry says at the end, you know, like he describes the children as like gay, innocent, and heartless. Right. Like the whole like last chapter of the book, he's like describing the children as brats for like putting Mr. and Mrs. Darling through this, like leaving and like and he also like finds Mrs. Darling incredibly pitiable and almost like holds her in contempt for like allowing her children to do this to her okay you know it's just like that a mother would just continuously let her children walk all over her you know what i mean right 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 you know out of out of love for them and stuff and that like in the book it's almost like no one really wins it's like it's it's like you're either just like ambivalently and amorally doing you at the expense of others or you're just like completely an insecure mess is all wrapped up in the idea of good form and like being socially having like some kind of social class and respectability like hook even in the movie hook is all about this idea of good form right and he brings it up a bunch of times yeah yeah yeah. in in the original book that's something that he gets from eaton college which isn't like mentioned in name but is like referenced the idea that hook like went to a proper boys school 
and like learned manners and culture and the way to act in civilized society and all this kind of stuff. Right. Like for a pirate, he's portrayed as someone who cares about status and class and respectability and civility and rules and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Whereas, whereas Peter is not. So it's like, I, I think like in hook, unless Spielberg is trying to have some kind of like cynical underpinning to it, that's like coded or something. He definitely portrays childhood innocence as something that's like good, right? Like Peter and the Lost Boys in Hook, like he says, let's show them the white light that we're made of. And then Hook says, let's show them the the fires from hell from which you were forged, you know? Like there's this really like clear distinction between like Hook is a pirate and he's the evil one. Uh, like that there's there's something I mean like yeah he's still obsessed with good form he's still this insecure even suicidal character um, who just hates his life and like there's only there's only meaning in his life when he has like an enemy like Peter to like counterbalance him or whatever right um, he's like a parent without a child you know right right um, but I, I think like Hook doesn't do quite as much work to have empathy for Hook. I mean, it's there, but, like, it doesn't do as much work to have empathy for Peter Banning. It really is more... And it doesn't do anything to say, like, children are actually heartless and selfish and all these things. But, like, I'm wondering... I, like, that's the thing. I was, I've wondered if there's, like, kind of an underpinning to it that's, that is more cynical, you know, like... I mean, I just... I think that those are ideas that apply to like the sixties and stuff too. Right. Like I, I think mm-hmm. if you're looking at, so I recently watched the, the Disney one again and just one of the things that really stood out to me was that one definitely has the heartless uh, thing going on, like hardcore. First of all, like the whole movie is about just like how women be jealous <laughs> and, and like, stab each other, <laughs> like backstab each other over a man, like the whole movie. Yeah, it's like yeah, all yeah. that's happening. And Peter just, like, doesn't give a shit about any of them. Like, he's totally just, like, going mm-hmm. around being like, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm the best. I saved Tiger Lily and whatever. Like, like after he saves Tiger Lily, he's just going off and, like, you know, showing off in front of Wendy about how cool it was that he just took out, you know, Hook or whatever. And she's like, what about Tiger yeah, Lily? He's yeah, like, oh, yeah. yeah, she's, like, drowning. <laughs> like, I'll go, I'll, yeah, I'll go save her real quick. <laughs> but he didn't even, it wasn't about her at all. It was all about his, you know, self-aggrandizing, yeah, yeah. like, battle and whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And I think what's interesting is like I I think that if we're talking about Hook as a movie that sees you know this as generational and we're looking at Peter Pan as sort of that '60s generation, it, we're talking about the generation that grew up watching Disney's Peter Pan mm-hmm. and you know became teenagers at the during the '60s and whatever. And like, who is like the most representative '60s figure to me for like Peter Pan when I was watching Disney's Peter Pan? Was I think he's really like a Manson man? <laughs> like he's really like he's just some dude who's got like tons of hot chicks around him that just want to fuck him and do his bidding, and then he can send in guys to kill people. Like he's he is like he, it's the American dream. Like you know what I mean? It's like that is yeah, yeah, yeah. that is what every young man wants is to like be Peter Pan. Like but <laughs> like but there is a certain like childish cruelty to it, mm-hmm. and I think that if you're talking yeah, about yeah. Peter Pan in the book and whatever, it sounds like we're really talking about the cruelty of childhood. Um, 
But in this case, I really feel like we're talking more about like the teenage sort of years. And even in even in Disney's Peter Pan, it, like it's, you know, all the all the girls kind of have boobs, at least. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, tinker, like I don't know, but, like all the romantic stuff is like with sexy cartoons. So they can't all be well, yeah. like six, yeah. you know. Um, and, and I, I do think that, yeah, if we're looking back at, you know, the people who were teenagers in the sixties, we're kind of talking about like a type of rebellion, um, that, yeah, there's a certain cruelty to it that we all kind of are aware of. Or, I mean, well, yeah, like, well, just like how, you know, Barry describes the kids as being brats for putting their parents through what they do by leaving and going to Neverland. It's like, what are all the you know, parents of the hippies going through. Yeah, yeah, kids are going and dropping out and going to hate Ashbury and taking acid and, yeah, like, like what fucking are you putting people until they eat through? cats How in the back alley. You be? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, the, there's the other side of... There's the other side of freedom and pursuing your dreams and being your most realized self that, like, there's collateral damage, you know? Yeah. And there's, there's hurt that you put on people and there's... And the thing is, I think that that's that's all stuff that Peter that Peter Banning realized, right? <laughs> you know, he, he mm-hmm. understood all of the follies of youth and whatever, and he got past that, and he stopped believing in those sorts of ideals and stuff. You know what I mean? Um, and left Neverland and whatever, and became this neoliberal. Um, well, he also became now, a father. But that's the thing. That's now yeah. now that he's a father. Now he has to actually go back and look at, like, well, what is it that I'm passing on to these kids? And, like, that mm-hmm. neoliberal thing isn't holding up. You know what I mean? Like, the, yeah, he's not yeah. around. He's not passing on anything to his son who doesn't want to be anything like him and is just going to reject all of his... Like, you know what I mean? Like, he's at a point, and, and they say this at a certain point. It's just, like, you're at a point in your life right now where, like, he's not going to be around forever. Like, this is the short period of time where they want to hang out with us. Like, mm-hmm. it's not going to be around forever. Like, in a couple of years, that's over. And, like, they won't, you won't have formed them. Like, you know what I mean? That, that, shit, that shit, like, makes me cry like, yeah. when she says that to him. Yeah, it's, like, yeah. such a beautiful moment. It's so movie. real, dude. Because like, it's like, you are not it. being careful and you're going to miss it. Yeah. It's not that long. It all happens really fast and you're missing it. And, like, mm-hmm. that's going to create who your kid is forever, you know? And if yeah. you're just this dear liberal fucking vacant person, then they're just going to be somebody who doesn't carry on any, like, I don't know. You know what I mean? There's, there's a, there's, there's a balance so- to be struck between being realistic and having like spiritual faith and all this kind of stuff, like in what's talked about in miracle. You know? Exactly. Well, that's, that's the thing like, is I think that if you don't give them something to aspire to or to become or to look up to or to believe in or any of that, then what are they subject to? It's just like the whims of, you know, capitalism. It's just like the, the, you know, the people out there who want to recruit them to do whatever it is they want to recruit them to do. You know what I mean? And well, become that's like why them. he's so easily is manipulated by Hook. Exactly. Like, he, ends up, he ends up having like... Stockholm syndrome, you know, yeah. and like he like sides with his captors exactly because he's so like just demystified by his father that exactly. like even what Hook has to offer him is like something, you know, <laughs> like exactly. exactly. It's one of those. It's it's like one of those things that works um, in concept a little more than it does within the plot of the movie, but you also like 
you know, Neverland makes you forget, as Maggie says. You know, she's a little younger than him. He's yeah, starting yeah, yeah. to, like, like, like Hook's got nothing on Maggie, and Maggie, Maggie still has faith in her parents and, like, their love for her. What happens despite... to Maggie through this whole movie, man? What the fuck happens to Maggie? Like, the, the Hook's lie. hanging out with the son the whole time, and then, like, he puts Maggie, what, in the chamber with the other little girls? Like, when, when, when like, yeah, with the other when Peter shows children. up, it's like, you've just, yeah, the other captured children, like, what do the other captured children do? And what are they for? Like, and what did she fucking go through? Like, you know what I mean? It's like, that's the whole part mm-hmm. of the movie that's so dark that we don't even see it. The other, the other guy's Stockholm Syndrome we see. What the fuck's happening with Maggie, dude? It's, she, she's on Epstein's <laughs> Island and shit. Like it's, it's like fuck. Because this is the thing, man. Is like that. Like I think that the pedophilia stuff in this movie, like, actually is completely there and on purpose when it comes to the pirates. Um, mm. I think that I think that we don't see any of what's going on with her. Probably because they decided let's do this narrative with a boy that's a little older or whatever. But I think that. Like, specifically, when Peter Pan comes in to save his son, what's Hook doing? Do you remember? He's penetrating his ear. Exactly. He's holding his ear out, and he's got his hook up, and he's, got, he's about to penetrate him with his hook. And what does he say? He says, like, get ready, because this is really going to hurt. <laughs> it's not like, this isn't going to hurt that much. It's like, no, I'm here to enjoy the pain of me penetrating you. It's like, that was not, it's not going to hurt that much. It got ice on it. It's going to be fine. I'm going to penetrate. No, he saved him in time. It's like, get ready. This is really going to hurt. And like, he's going to enjoy that it hurts you when he penetrates you. And then Peter Pan saves it for that. Like, that seems to me to be like, I mean, the whole, the whole process of capturing the sun and then realizing that like, no, instead of just like hurting him, I can make him love me first. That's the real, like thing you know what i mean mm-hmm. and if i make him love me before i penetrate him like violently like in front of his father like, yeah, you know what yeah, i mean yeah. it's like and the process of him like manipulating this child into loving him before he penetrates him is fucked up like it's a fucked mm-hmm. up weird thing to put in a movie um yeah, yeah. i think but like but- it is the villain of the movie that is contrasted with pan And I think that if you're talking about, Mm -hmm. like, the idea of the Peter Pan syndrome or whatever and stuff, it's like, there's, like, if you were trying to say that J.M. Barry was hanging out with these kids in a a way that was not pedophilic, then perhaps this is the way that we're seeing Pan, like, operating. And we're seeing the two options, right? We're seeing, like, Mm -hmm. we're trying to induct this kid into this way of thinking by manipulating them and doing this sort of thing and whatever and, and raping them. Um, or you're trying to surround yourself with these kids to be inspired by your own youth and then get across the right message to them, be the type of adult that you want them to aspire to be or allow them. Like, there's something... Mm-hmm. I think that that's the thing. is like when you look at Spielberg and you, and you want to criticize Spielberg by saying, what is his obsession with kids? Why is he always making these movies about kids? What's the thing about kids? It's like, well, dude, what is the thing about kids? Like, how about... There's only a couple of years where you can actually get in there and fucking make a difference. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Adults don't yeah, have yeah. that, like, malleability. You're not going to be able to, like, change a society by, like, changing the minds of the adults. Like, the way True, that you change yeah. a society mm-hmm. is by fucking getting the kids and they, they getting the right messages and the right ideas to those kids. That is real power. Like... 
How do you get to the adult through the child? Exactly, exactly. Um, which I think is really I mean, interesting. Like, I like I love the way Hook is uh, turning him against the parents. You know, like they tell you stories to shut you up. Uh, he says the truth is far too much fun. You know, like before you were born, they were happy, and it's like. That, the thing the thing that's really seductive about like a villain like this is the fact that there's some truth to what he's saying. Right, exactly. Know? Is that like it's not that they hate you, they don't love you, and like you are just this burden and nuisance. But there but who is, is an element. What is what of is he there. doing here that we just talked about? He's doing the same thing it's as that guy in Mir- the psychiatrist in Miracle, right? Yeah, he's yeah, saying like you hate your father. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're right. Yep. yep. Exactly. <laughs> it's like if maybe there's some truth to it that there was this thing or whatever, but now you've convinced him that he hates his father, and that's fucking mm-hmm. weird. <laughs> like, and what is it you're doing that for? Is it just to legitimize yourself or whatever? Is it, and is this not also just like a type of manipulation or a type of perversion that your that your whole job is? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, there's there's very little difference between like what Hook is doing by like manipulating and trying to rape this child and what that psychiatrist is doing. Um, the difference is that he, in the, in the other movie, doesn't try and penetrate him. But, like, it's it's very similar as far as, like, the manipulation of the brain and the changing of the mind of somebody and for what motive to make them miserable like you. I mean, I love that both Hook and Banning, when they're first introduced, are just talking about killing themselves. Oh, like, yeah, exactly. Peter why is like, somebody just shoot, just shoot me in the head? <laughs> and then yeah, when yeah. Hook comes in, he's just like holding a gun to his head, like, oh, I'm going to do it this time. It's me. I'm going to do it. It's like they're fucking miserable because they're the same. Like they're they're neoliberals yeah, yeah, yeah. and they have nothing to value because like in Miracle on 34th Street, they've, they've given up all of the things that there was worth valuing and, except for gaining capital um, and success. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. yeah. Traditionally, the actor who played Hook also would play Mr. Darling on stage. Okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. There was that always, like, a connection between the two characters. Yep, yep, definitely um, makes sense. But yeah, man, I, I, I totally agree. I think the scene of Hook being suicidal and all that shit is one of the best scenes in the movie. And yeah. Like, one oh, of my yeah. favorite scenes of any movie. Dude, Dustin <laughs> Hoffman just, is insane so, in this movie. Like, it's, it's such so an incredible good. performance. It's an incredible performance. It's so good. Like, he's so much Iconic fun to watch. Everybody is fuck. so much fun to watch, but, like, Dustin Hoffman is yep, incredible yep. in this movie. <laughs> he disappears into the role, too. Like, totally, I didn't totally. know who he was as a kid. And, like, he is Captain Hook. You yeah. know, like... His look, Dude, his, with, his mannerisms, like, it's just Same with amazing. Smee, even more so. Like, oh, watching yeah, this again, I was just like, holy shit, that's, uh, what's his name? Yeah. Um, Bob Hoskins. Yeah, Bob Hoskins. Like, I can't, I didn't even, yeah, he's incredible. And he, but he's doing the same Smee from the, uh, the animated movie. The cartoon, the movie, yeah. Which mm-hmm. I think, really, like you were saying, like, this is the first one after that movie, but it's also, like, really continuing the aesthetics of that movie it really feels like mm-hmm. that peter pan just like left neverland then when he was the age of all those kids I, that grew up to be in yeah, the 60s yeah, 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 and whatever yeah, yeah. so he left then and then he became charles manson and then he became you know jeff bezos <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? because it's pre-internet so it wasn't jeff bezos but same thing i have to say I mean? like um reading the book though i do think hook Hook is very, very faithful to the original text as well. It, like, uses a lot of lines of dialogue that are straight from the book. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, Hook is just a retelling of the book. Like, it has a very similar story arc 
to the original Peter Pan and stuff. Interesting. But 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 it's like this this one difference of making Pan yeah, the one who's discovering Neverland and rediscovering his childhood and all this stuff like I really do think adds a lot of layers to it that like aren't there in the book. Totally. Where like the you know the pirate actually does have to like consider his child beginnings and like his innocence that was lost and all this kind of stuff. Um, like I, 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 and also for the record, I think the original Disney movie is like surprisingly faithful to the book. Interesting. Um, it tones a lot of stuff down and like becomes more of a Looney Tunes cartoon in a lot of ways and stuff like that. But like almost beat for beat, all the plot moments are the same. And if anything, it just like tones down a lot of the violence and a lot of the cruelty of Peter Pan. He is still like kind of a cruel, ambivalent, amoral character in the Disney movie, but he is way more so in the book. Yeah. Like there there's a there's a thing where like when they're flying to Neverland, like the, the it it takes a really long time to fly to Neverland in the book. Okay. And like the kid and the kids have to like learn to sleep while flying and stuff. Okay. And like, and they, and they, and they eat by like hunting birds and shit like that. Like it's really wacky. And, um, like Peter starts playing a game with Michael where like he lets Michael will fall asleep and then start falling to his death. And Peter will like wait till the last possible moment to swing down and catch him. Right. 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 You know? And he just does this over and over again. And like, there's also like, Tons of times where Peter, like, just forgets about them and, like, goes off on his own adventure and he comes back and he, like, doesn't remember what their names are and stuff. Right, right, right. Um, the way he treats the Lost Boys is pretty, like, there's, like, there's almost no difference between Peter and Hook. Like, right. they both command, like, a group of people. They're both the captains. And they do it by having just, like, really intense personalities that nobody else can compete with. Mm-hmm. Like, Peter will whip his Lost Boys into shape, and there's tons of, like, lines of dialogue that suggest that Peter will use violence to whip his uh, Lost Boys into shape Mm -hmm. and to show Mm -hmm. them who's in control and stuff like that. So he's, like, a lot like Hook, but he does it with an innocence that Hook doesn't have. Hook is way more aware of what he is and what he's doing, whereas Peter is just amoral, Mm -hmm. you know? Hook is immoral. The book... Hook is immoral, yeah, and Peter's amoral. So it's like that's like the only real difference, you know? And Hook envies Peter's innocence, and that's like all it is. In fact, the the, the last moment of Hook in the book is all he really wants is like for Peter to show bad form. <laughs> like Right, right, like, right. He he thinks like Peter's just like this beautiful, perfect form, you know? Right. And like and he, like, sort of tricks Peter into, like, kicking him over the edge of the boat instead of just, like, ending him gracefully with his sword. Mm-hmm. And, like, this final moment of Peter kicking him overboard to the crocodile satisfies him in knowing that Peter engaged in bad form. Like, it's a really weird thing mm-hmm. that he's, like, trying to get to. when when But, like... But, like, the good form, bad form thing is definitely a big part of Hook as well. And Hook is the one who actually shows bad form in the end, not Peter, by, like, offering surrender, but then, like, scraping his arm with right, the hook right, or whatever. Right, right, Yep, You know? Yep. It's, um... But yeah, all, all of that to, to, to go back to saying that, like, I think 
hooks um all the things that kind of rhyme between hook and the original disney film like a lot of that is also just there in the book and it feels very very faithful to all previous interpretations of the material while still doing its own thing you know which is really totally, cool totally um but i do think going back to the 60s stuff we'll yeah. just bring up a couple of these details where it's like the lost boys really do feel like merry pranksters and they're and they're literally trying to like get peter on the bus they're trying to pull him into their movie you know they're saying play play and the whole yeah like dinner scene where they imagine the food and this idea of engaging in imagination and using your imagination in some sort of a group is, setting and whatever instead of yeah. a group well, setting this is, this is a subjective thing. reality when, thing when you're talking about the amorality of childhood and the amorality like of of that sort of innocence of childhood and whatever the, the, like the other places that i see that is like well, there's the amorality of, like, angels in, like, the Bible that don't, you know. But there's also the totally. amorality of, like, psychedelics. Like, you know what I mean? Somebody who's on, like, a trip, yep. uh, a psychedelic trip, there is no, you know, meaning. You lose meaning. You lose context. You lose morality. You become, like, a child. You forget you, like, things. You, yeah, yeah, you yeah. Forget it's things. really psychedelic how Peter acts. Um, he's definitely, like, in the book, he's a lot like a guy on acid who leaves home base and comes back and forgets things. Right. And that's, I mean, that that to me really feels Manson-y, dude. Like, the idea of, like, yeah, Manson yeah, yeah. hanging out with a whole bunch of chicks that he's fucking at his place. And then he goes out for a weekend. He comes back. And he doesn't remember anyone's names, but he's got a lot to say. <laughs> like, and whatever. Like it's And it doesn't have to be an evil one like Manson. It could be one of the 30,000 other ones that were around, you know, in the 60s. But just cult leader folks or psychedelic tripped out, you know, guru folks. Like, that totally is... Mm -hmm connected to me like to the psychedelia of that and that time and i think that that's also connected to these people at that age so if you know if if peter banning grew up from the point of being a teenager it would have been in the 60s and that's what like all of this kind of connects but it's also there there are lines of dialogue in the movie he references the well, 60s a couple yeah, of times yeah he specifically um, says i he says i missed the 60s i was an accountant and then tinkerbell says guess again right and then and that's when his trip starts. Then, then she trips him. Yeah, yeah. Then he she falls trips over. him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's when, that's exactly. when the trip starts. And it is a psychedelic trip, mm. which, like, in the movie, you see it's it's generally in induced by alcohol, right? Like, when he wakes up at the base yeah, of the drinking. statue, he's mm -hmm. surrounded by a bunch of liquor bottles and, the, you know, guys judging him and stuff. But it's a, a psychedelic yeah, yeah. trip to another place that comes from the use of substances that he's referencing to the 60s that... It's making him remember his youth when he used to be as powerful guy that was always in this psychedelic atmosphere and whatever back in the 60s. Like, you know what I mean? It's, it's all very much on that subject. And I well, think that his 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 um, transition to Peter Banning also happens in the 60s because you can see Moira has like Hard Day's Night poster on above her bed and like right. Beatles paraphernalia around her bed. Right. So when he goes and decides to kiss Moira, he also drops the thimble and gives her a real kiss so it's like the it's like the 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 very symbol of like what a kiss was gets dropped to the floor and he gives her a real kiss and that's the moment where he decides to leave Neverland and become Peter Banning and it's during the 60s and like you know his uh, daughter also says like I'm going to give you a hug and the hug is the parachute and it's like it's the idea that like 
the concept is more important than the reality again. Right, you right. Know, that the thimble and what it represents is more important than the actual kiss or that the like the the hug and what this represents is more important than the the fact that it's actually a parachute or whatever. Well the parachute the, is what he didn't have in the picture that his son drew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so she yeah. gives him one gives and him like one. tries to mitigate that or whatever. Yeah, that's right. But, that's right. But I but I, I'm glad you brought up that point too about like how it actually is a trip and there, it starts with the alcohol and that literal tripping and the, that's when Tinkerbell arrives. And he mentions like he mentions LSD mm-hmm. too or something. He's like, "Am I tripping?" Like, he, there's like a. Th- it's not just. It's not just I missed the. It's it's like it starts with him being like, "Am I on drugs? I can't be on drugs. I never did drugs. I missed the." He says, like, "You are a Freudian hallucination. That has something to do with my mother." Right, right, right. He's well. That's that's like, obviously he's trying to describe it through psychological terms, the way that the you know yeah, miracle yeah, on Thirty yeah. Fourth Street guy would, um, instead of accepting mm-hmm. it. He, yeah. I realize that in that moment, though, he's actually being pretty imaginative when he looks down. He says, that's my house way down there. When he's looking <laughs> yeah, at the dollhouse. Yeah. He's like a dude who's tripping. <laughs> like, he's yeah, like, yeah. really, he's having a great time. And then this gets into, like, the fact that, you know, this, this, this um, con- contextualizing it as a dream or a nightmare, too, is also getting brought up a lot. Like, when he first wakes up in Neverland, he says, oh, what a nightmare. Moira! And, like, then he rips open the blanket and sees, like, the clock and the Mm -hmm. the crocodile and whatever. Mm -hmm. And then, Mm -hmm. like, at the end of the movie, Hook says, you know you're not really Peter Pan. This is only a dream. And when you wake up, you'll just be Peter Banning, a cold, selfish man who drinks too much, is obsessed with success, and runs and hides from his wife and children. Yep. And then that's when the kids start saying, I believe in you. I believe in you. I believe in you, Peter Pan. You know, which is the same exact language that's used in Miracle and 34th, where she says, I believe in you in the letter to Santa and whatever. Yep, yep. Like this idea of like, they all believe in you, believe in yourself. But I really, I really think there's, it's, it's, it, it's nice that this movie never ends up being like, it was all a dream or it was all a trip. But I really love that there's enough details and information there for you to suggest this, this like layered, metaphor of like this is a psychedelic trip and it's connected to the 60s but it's also so, about well, I mean, a man say, who's you'd say it's a flashback which was which was still kind of a concept you say it's a flashback yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. you could also say this is a man playing pretend with his children in the way that jay and barry would right that like this entire thing is actually just like a metaphoric and visual representation of peter banning playing a game with his kids that they are egging him on to play and that he is becoming more and more drawn to, you know? Yeah. Um, like, who plays who and how it all actually happens in a plotting, realistic kind of way, it doesn't really matter. No, right, but it but is, there it are is so he's connecting many, with his own childhood through playing with his kids. Yeah, through, or like having play. kids yeah, and yeah, having yeah. to address the kids and whatever, and through play he mm-hmm. actually discovers what he used to be, the person that he should still be, yeah. Yeah, and this connects to the idea of what Neverland is in the original book because Neverland is not never actually called Neverland. It's called the Neverland in Weird. the book. Okay, and the the Neverland is a place that every child has. So like mm-hmm. John has a Neverland, and Michael has a Neverland, and Wendy has a Neverland, and they all have their own Neverlands, which are just their imaginative worlds. Okay, and when when Peter first brings them to the Neverland. And he never says, like, I'm taking you to Neverland. He just says, second star on the right, straight until morning. 
And when they go to the Neverland, John sees his flamingos there. And Michael sees, like, this derelict ship that's from his Neverland there. But the idea is that this Neverland that Peter's bringing them to, it's like, it's being cast as, like, the real Neverland. Like, oh, we all had our imaginative places, but he's bringing us to the real one. But, like, all of their stuff is there. And, I, like, Peter's actually almost, like, annoyed that they recognize stuff that's there already. Okay. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's this weird, like, thing where, like, now they're actually in intersubjective play where all of their various imaginative worlds are combining. Right, um, right. And the, the, and the idea that in Hook it is simply a game of pretend is really backed up by the fact that a lot of things that are in the house are also in Neverland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Teddy, you know? And, yeah. like, everything in that bedroom looks like parts of Hook's ship, and, like, and the entirety of Hook's ship is in a bottle, and Teddy is, like, in the den, and there's also, like, John's top hat and glasses are also in the house, but they're also in the den in Neverland. And... There's the thing where, like, you know, Wendy says, do you like my dress? And he kind of ignores her. But then later, Tinkerbell's wearing a dress. And he's like, you look so beautiful. And she's like, you like my dress? And mm-hmm. there's, mm-hmm. like, a lot of connections between yeah, it's a mirror world, the definitely. house. It's a, mirror, it's a mirror world where a lot of these things are being represented in both places. Um, and also, like, Smee is straight up, like, in the real world at the end, like, sweeping up bottles. and Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think, like, Tinkerbell says, you know, that place between dreaming and awake, that pl- that place where, you know what I mean, that's where, I, that's where you'll find me. That's it's the only way to fly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, I, I really like that the movie has that kind of ambiguity. It seems like such a straightforward movie, but, like, there are a lot of details and elements that sort of suggest this dream logic, dream reality, kid logic, imagination, reality, confluence thing where um, you don't really know what's actually happening in this movie. Not to mention the entire kidnapping of the children, insanely surreal. Yeah, it's, like, it's insane that he came through the window but also came through the door, right? Exactly, yeah. He like <laughs> It looks like he came through the door and broke the door and like scratched his hook all the way up the stairs and whatever. But the window also opened, and the window has the hook latch on it. And then like the covers just get like whipped off the children as if it's poltergeist. And there's like weird green light emanating. And then like also, I don't know if it's intentional or whatever, but that ball that they're throwing for Wendy to commemorate her, that shit looks like The Shining, like straight up. Like when the kids are getting... Like They're standing up, kidnap. Yeah, when the kid and what, what is this? I don't know. We're not going to talk about the shining, but yeah, trauma, abuse, childhood abuse, blah blah blah. blah. Oh, well, so I mean, that's, making that weird... scene is insane, dude. Like we didn't even get into that as far as the yeah childhood trauma, abuse stuff and whatever. Like that scene, it, Peter's con- like talking about his love for Wendy and stuff in a way that's like definitely. A weird intergenerational, like, it, it feels like Wendy captured him as a kid and, like, he's so in love with her and stuff. And then, like, all these other people are too. There, there's, and she seems what so. What if Wendy is Hook? Wendy yeah, is playing something, Captain Hook. Yeah, there's something like that going on there. There's something, she, there's something dark about that scene, man. There's something really dark about, like, Wendy saving all of those orphans. I'm not really sure what it is, but like the way that the lines were, the way that Peter's talking about it, there's something, it implies trauma. 
There's something about that scene mm-hmm. that implies trauma for all of them. That's unspoken. We were orphans, and she saved us, and... Yeah, it's weird. It's a bizarre thing. It does connect to Barry no, and the it's orphanage. Not just, it's and... not just that, though. There was something really weird and creepy about that scene last time I watched it. That was like, what? Mm-hmm. what is this going to be connecting to? Uh, I do think this is for anyone else who wants to watch the movie and like think deeply, more deeply about it. There's stuff there. No, there's definitely stuff there. For I mean, when, when you brought up, because like, like, even the pedophilic stuff like is not really stuff that I thought was there, but like, am sort of rethinking having this conversation. No, I definitely, I definitely think it's there. It's also about finding kids who don't have families, who are alone, and whatever. Like, that's what, like... Mm-hmm. And when Peter talks about how he left his family in the first place, it's like it, he's talking about it as if, like, I decided to, to go and, like, that w- there wasn't enough for me there. And so I went to Neverland or whatever. But it's like, nah, man, he, his parents, like, abandoned him and then dropped him in a gutter. And, like, he's writing a narrative of that being his choice to leave. But it wasn't. It was obviously abuse or something like that. He was abandoned. Maybe. Um, and there's I something. I mean, his parents are sitting there talking about what his future is going to be like. It doesn't they don't they're not talking about him like they're going to abandon him. They're setting him up to be Peter Banning, like who he ends up becoming. Like they say, he's going to go to Whitehall and then Oxford and have a judgeship in the highest court and then making time for family and all that. Um, right. You know, everybody, and he says everybody who grows up has to die someday, like this fear of death, which is a weird thought to have as a baby, which doesn't make sense. You know, it's like, it's kind of like, right. that feels like a retroactive. All of it does. Like, That's what I'm saying. Ra- like the, rationalization. Yeah. Yeah. Because the scene went like, while he's doing the voiceover, it's raining and he's like, the crib falls over and he's just a baby on the street with rain falling on him. And it's talking about how he chose to go to Neverland in the voiceover. And like, that to me feels like there's an irony in that juxtaposition where it's about like, this was my choice to do. And it was empowering for me. And when it's like, no, maybe it wasn't. And I guess it is because, yeah, it is is really fantastical, the idea that, like, the wind just swept his carriage away. Right. From his his mom who was sitting there on the bench. And, you know what I mean? Like, it's very bizarre and and surreal and fantastical. His his relationship with this old lady that he still feels like he's in love with. Um, but he mm-hmm. hooked up with her daughter yeah. because she set him up with her daughter the because they had a weird previous relationship. They did. I mean, they, she was Wendy, so they did have a relationship. And mm-hmm. then he got with her daughter because of the like thing, but there's still some weird tension there, intergenerational sexual tension there. It's, it's very strange and incestuous and, and like trauma adjacent. You know what I mean? And the fact that all those other guys stand up and like mimic his experience also with this beautiful woman that they all love, this old lady, like there's something weird about it that felt. And and it's also like, yes, it's juxtaposed with the things going wrong and her getting upset because she feels something in the air because the kids are being kidnapped or whatever. But like, there's something really sinister about that scene already, I think. Well, also Um, the fact that it does feel like the last shot of the shining too. Well, yeah feels really bizarre where you just see the shot of like all the people standing up and clapping for her while she's yeah, like yeah, yeah. having her having her little fit did it's she do the really un- pose? <laughs> it's really it's really unsettling no um, it is it is 
It's, it's a very unsa- I mean, the beginning of that movie is terrifying, dude. Like, as a little kid, the, the, the scene where they're abducted is terrifying. The old lady's face is terrifying. Like, the, the beginning, like, that whole part of it, to me, like, I, I, I still remember, like, the intense fear. Like, there's something just as scary about her at the, at the podium as there is about the actual capture. Like, as a little kid, her face yeah, yeah. was, mm-hmm. like, the, one of the scariest parts of that movie. Um, not just because it was old, like because she looked horrified, like you know what I mean. Also because it was old, <laughs> but you know she. Maggie uh, Smith was actually like only in her fifties, and they like they actually aged her. Yeah, makes but, sense. But like she looks as it's, but the makeup's so good. Yeah, sure. that she like she looks the way she does like now, now <laughs> like in her actual like nineties or whatever it is, yeah. like. She's like that. Like that woman has been perpetually ninety years old in my mind, like <laughs> right. my whole life. <laughs> like, holy shit! Yeah. Well, that's there's another. She's she's just been she's spent a lot of time in Neverland since then. You know. Yeah. They should do a sequel to Hook, where she's the same age, and Hook's like, "Are you fucking serious? Have you been?" So I I really like the idea that if it's all just so if you're gonna take the realism approach, that it's all just a game of pretend and it's all imagination in their minds, and that like the idea that Wendy's playing Hook is interesting that she hooked Peter that like this whole concept and metaphor of the idea of the hook, not to mention, dude, there's an an insane amount of fishing um, symbolism in this movie. There's hooks, there's nets, there's lines, there's bobs. There's like a lot of weird fishing symbolism. Yeah. (laughs) And like this idea of like, yeah, sexy mermaids. This, this idea of like, like the hook being like the catch and like you put the hook in someone like, Hook is putting the hook into his son and hooking him in and dragging him in or whatever. Right. Like the idea that like the title of the movie actually is like somehow the core of it. And like there's like really a reason why it's Hook and not Peter Pan, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, going back to the – but like also going back to the um, the thing of being a pedo, like – I actually did read that um, Dustin Hoffman and Bob Hoskins realized at one point in the production that their characters are queens, and so they actually leaned into that. Right, right. And when they and when they brought it to Spielberg, he was just like, "This is a kids' movie." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's classic Spielberg being like, "No, no, you're not supposed to know what the movie is about. Like, I'm the one that's supposed to know that you guys are like, queens." Like, yeah, like, but we're queens, right? We're, like, totally gay. We're, like, fucking each other. Like, they like, might no. not have seen it as pedophilia. <laughs> no, but. that's the thing. Maybe that's it. Yeah. So it was like, no, you're not fucking each other. This is a kids movie. Kids movie. You're fucking <laughs> the kids. <laughs> <laughs> they left that end part uh, of the quote out, you know, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. I mean, the the first few shots of the movie are the shot are shots of children's faces in awe, like of the play that they're watching. Yeah, 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 totally. It looks like that. It's uh, like, uh, that uh, what's Godfrey Reggio talk? It's all the kids mm-hmm. watching the TV and being, you know, yeah, 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 mind warped and whatever. Yeah, but, man, there's there's a whole lot of shit in this yeah. movie. I have like a ton yeah. of other details written down, but it's like, but I think I think part of the Part of my thing is, like, I don't think that it necessarily has to be, like, this is the pedophilia of this elite that is doing it. Like, I think that when we're talking about, like, 
hook penetrating his son or whatever. Like, yeah, him raping his son is a perfect metaphor for what the workforce is doing to your sons. They don't have to actually be mm-hmm. getting raped in the butthole for like that to actually, like, you know what I mean? No, sure, it's like, sure. it's still yeah. like, it works that same way. And like, it works both ways. Like maybe it also is they're raping him in the butthole, but it's, it, it is, it works in the metaphoric way too. Kind of the way like, you know, spirited away does or something, you know, it, it's, a, mm-hmm. a different world that represents these things, both sexually and psychologically and spiritually and politically and whatever. Um, the, um, the, the metaphor of just like how polite society and industrial society kind of just like rapes us all is perfectly apt. Right. Now there's, there's a rape of childhood that happens that disconnects you from your imagination and childhood wonder. Right. And right. It's the rape of logic and rationalization and realism and whatever. Right. You know. Um, of discovering that Santa's not real. Yeah. Exactly. And, like, the, the obsession with clocks, I think, you know, what, like, I can't think about clocks in movies now. I mean, obviously, clocks are everywhere, so you can never just, like, assume that they're a metaphor for something if they exist in a movie. But, like, this movie has a weird preoccupation with time and clocks, even oh, yeah. more so than than the original novel. And yeah, the yeah, yeah. Disney one, there there is this weird thing about how, like in the novel and in the Disney movie, like Hook is sort of fed to the crocodile. But it happened. But like in the Disney movie, they don't they don't show him dying. You know, like like for all you know, he just kind of he kind of gets just chased across the water into right. the horizon, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then in like the original teams. book, mm-hmm, and in the book, um, it never says like he was torn up. Like he never like describes his death in any kind of like visceral way you just kind of assume the croc got him you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so like this idea that hook actually defeated the croc is like this whole idea of the like that hook feels like he beat time or something and that like he's no longer a slave to it and then there's been this concerted effort ever since to break every clock in neverland and like have this weird like museum of clocks dead clocks that he keeps around as a reminder or something yeah um like it's hard for me to to think about clocks now not being related to the industrial revolution and like that very like the clock for most of history is like you know no two towns had the same time on their clock you right. know and clocks were always just kind of like personal items and like you know people would sync up their watches with like the village clock but the village clock wasn't necessarily like perfectly in time with any other village's clock or whatever so it's like there was a thing that like happened in the industrial revolution where the clock became more important and having like standardized ideas of time became a lot more important and allowed for schedules and mm, allowed for schedules and like allowed for the world that Peter Banning exists in. And that like, you know, the, the pirates are sort of like, it's, it's weird because like, you know, they call Peter a pirate and stuff like that. And it's like, yeah, I get that. But Peter is way more like attached to time and the clock than hook is right. There is a weird bit of like a contradiction to the idea that hook isn't like tied to the clock or has a fear of the clock and doesn't really like, it almost feels like the clock represents death to hook more than anything else. You know, right. Right. Like your, your time will run out and that like, there's a, but I think that that's what it represents to Peter time. Banning, too. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he's passing it on to his son and saying this is important and blah, 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 and whatever. But, like, what he realizes throughout the film is that, like, yeah, that was just passing on obsession with death and anxiety and schedules and that sort of thing to your mm-hmm. son, you know? Um, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But it is weird that... that Hook is attacking the clocks, though. <laughs> you know, it's like he's, yeah, he's obsessed yeah. with it because he hates it, but he also loves it, and that's you know, there, like there's there is there's a weird contradiction there that I don't really know if I have completely figured out. It seems psychologically, you know, valid, but I don't know if it, analytically I've got it completely down. Um, why mm-hmm. that would yeah. why he would be destroying them as opposed to collecting them, you know? Um, yeah. And why that's, that, that's something I don't have like entirely sussed out either. Is, yeah. um, but I do that's probably, think that's probably the reason that Spielberg said he was he had problems with this movie. That one thing, <laughs> like that whole, that whole clock thing, was the only. <laughs> I wish Spielberg I also more like clear. didn't. Also, Spielberg didn't really love the experience of working with all these kids. Like you said, it was incredibly difficult. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, trying to rein all that ch- childish energy in, so it's like. Yeah, to some degree, he was really, like, living the movie and, like, facing a lot of the energies that he was trying to talk about and maybe got a little bit lost in that and, like, lost track and just didn't really know where it was going. Or I think, like, but, like, whatever, whatever in the intent was, like, something about this movie speaks on many levels and feels like a four meeting function thing feels like an artist living the story and the work kind of thing. Totally. You know, like it's all there and it's a, it's connection to miracle 34th and like all these ideas and this Christmas movie status. And the other thing I didn't like bring up was the idea that I also just think like, um, Peter Banning's arc in this is a death and resurrection arc. So it's kind of a Christly arc. You know? Right, right. Um, um, definitely. Which has the, which goes the Christmas along with thing. most Christmas story. Yeah, for sure. Which is similar to like, you know, the death and rebirth of George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life. Or, right. You know, that kind of stuff. I mean, it's completely that, yeah. Um, just disappears for a night and comes back and he's like, mm-hmm. it's all good. Zuzu's petals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. My other thing when we um, were talking about like the 60s and whatnot, um, and thinking of these kids as pranksters and that sort of thing. I think that part of it is, is that, is that's who they are to Peter Banning, right? When he's reconnecting with his childhood and that sort of thing. But this is also mm-hmm. happening in the modern day, right? Like, so this is Neverland is like a modern Neverland as well. And these, I mean, it's the very nineties. They're playing basketball and skating on skateboards and shit. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I think that the nineties of it is important. That he also brings the kids out of Neverland in the end, right? Like aren't or does he not? Who? No, he only brings his kids back, but in the original Peter Pan, all all the lost boys get adopted by the darlings. Right. Right. That's what happens in the original in in the Disney movie too, right? But in this one, yeah, yeah, yeah. In this one in this one he doesn't bring them back. He instead leaves Neverland to um, them, right? And do you remember which one he leaves it to? The the fat black gun. Yep, yep. Leaves it to the little black kid. Mm-hmm. 
And those are like the only, like, there's like a couple black pirates, but there's definitely a very concerted effort to have the Lost Boys be sort of like multiracial minorities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Multiracial. Well, I mean, like, uh, one of everything. Um, There's like a pair of twins who were the white twins or whatever. There's a, like, you know, Filipino kid. There's a black kid. There's a a fat black kid and a skinny black kid. There's uh yeah, there's a ginger, there's like a kid that wears that goofy outfit. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's just like there's there's like one of each sort of archetype. Um mm-hmm. but he chooses to leave Neverland to the fat black kid. And uh I think that's interesting because this is in the nineties. And like first of all, like one of the things we yeah, didn't yeah. talk about is like there was kind of an idea in the nineties of there being like a rebirth of the sixties and stuff. I, I like um that's the reason that yeah. they made um mm-hmm. Um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas into a movie and stuff was uh, Terry Gilliam was just kind of about like I, I felt like there was a, a 60s thing coming back in the 90s and it didn't turn out to happen that way but like it felt like that at the beginning of the 90s that maybe this was the new thing um, and I think that he's mm-hmm. kind of do, doing that in this movie kind of adapting the 60s for a 90s sort of audience or whatever but we're talking about basically the Lost Boys the revolution you know what i mean we're talking about the mm-hmm. like the hippies or whatever but like what is the hippies in the 90s is like yeah yeah i feel sure. like that's like gangster rap and shit right like that's like you know like well, this is 91 like, that's that's really having its finger on I know, the pulse like, i know I mean, this, this is like it's like three years before this is before like, the riots and yeah, shit yeah. exactly but it's a couple years before the la riots and him you know being like maybe this is the next one like i'm not like these boomer shit that i've been on like is like i can raise my kids like you know what i mean but i can't be in charge of neverland he He passes the torch on specifically to this kid and i think that's interesting i also think that the lost boys i mean what do they say they say bangerang all the time you know what bangerang means it means chaos basically or commotion but it's jamaican i'm pretty sure yeah, it's a Jamaican word that they're all saying. And they could have used, you know, mm-hmm. an Indian word. Or they could have used, you know, bonsai. They could have used lots of stuff. I mean, the Native Americans completely not represented in this movie. <laughs> they, like, yeah, they, they, mentioned, they, they, they... <laughs> they mentioned the Indians one time. And he's like, you want to go shoot some Indians? Like, oh, I'm sick of shooting Indians. Yeah, I'm it. tired of killing Indians and lost boys. Yeah, so, like, basically, it's Indians and lost boys. And he doesn't want to do the Indian thing. So the Lost Boys are the Indians, right? Like that's the Indians and Lost Boys. He Mm -hmm. ties in as one thing. And so the Lost Boys just are the Indians now. And they're the minorities. And they're the revolution. And the torch is being passed to the young black kid. They're using all this to make it. Like, I think much like Martin, maybe we could look at this as as a black man. (laughs) It could be seen that way. But I think them being the Indians of now and stuff and the revolutionaries of now and that sort of thing in the 90s when, I mean, obviously Spielberg's about to do a bunch of black stuff. Like, you know, he's, he's about mm-hmm. to get into, you know, Amistad and, you know, other ones. We won't even, we'll mm-hmm. get into it. <laughs> but he's, Color purple. And yeah. yeah, he was about to adopt his black son and stuff. Like, it's, I don't know, mm-hmm. her daughter, which one? I think maybe a son. Yeah, I'm not sure. There is there is a certain you know embrace of African Americans by Spielberg in the nineties that I think specifically oh, is highlighted at, this movie, um, at the very beginning mm-hmm. of the nineties and right before like that took off in the counterculture because because that's basically what we're talking like, when I say revolution whatever I really should be saying counterculture that like we're talking mm-hmm. about the culture versus counterculture like battle between the pirates and the Indians or lost boys or minorities or whatever it may be hippies 
Um, no, I'm sure, man. But the other thing about the other thing about Thud is that he's wearing the same outfit that like Maggie wears when they like enter Wendy's house at the beginning. She's wearing kind of like the same cap. Interesting. Interesting. Stuff, which is like a Scot, which is kind of a Scottish outfit. Which Jane Barry was Scottish, so I don't know if that's the thing. But interesting. But yeah, I mean, for the record, yeah. you know, it's obvious we both are fans of this movie. I love Hook. Every yeah. time I, every time I rewatch this movie, it just like I, mean, I before, love the vibe. Before we finish, can we just talk about how fucking incredible the sets are in this movie? <laughs> The sets are incredible. Like yeah. none of the it looks real, really but good. like it looks yeah, amazing. Yeah. Like it looks amazing the way that like the yeah. Wizard of Oz looks amazing or something. But like mm-hmm. way more so. <laughs> like honestly, like those those pirate ship sets and stuff. Like they're incredible mm-hmm. and surreal. Like they don't feel real, but I don't know. Or the yeah. tree houses and shit. It's just it's really like as a kid that is such a great super stimulus like and as an adult oh, yeah, it man, remains just as great <laughs> everything feels like everything's really warm and feels like everything has like a flavor like everything whole, has like, texture to it like the water's got paint on top of it yeah well all the day glow paint shit is another like big merry pranksters thing right just know? like painting the trees like, literally and the like everything's and... made out of day glow paint you know? yeah yeah and like oh man yeah I, I mean the the feast scene like makes me hungry like every time like I feel like that scene is like a, a like a testament to like the power of cinematic imagination because like well did you did you see what the cheese said on it no yeah so there's like a bunch of things on the table including the cheese and some other things that have like words on them mm. and what they are are like all of the insults that. Pan and Rufio had just like shot back at each other. You know really? what I mean? It's That's like, awesome. yeah, yeah, That's yeah. Cool. It's like paramecium brain or whatever. Like, <laughs> like, yeah, it's like a bunch of just insults and stuff. So like part of that scene is like, it's, it's, it's like, it's their imagination or whatever, but it's also insults that they're throwing at each other in this, in, mm-hmm. you know, there's, I never noticed that before, but seeing it on the 4k, I was like, Oh fuck, let me pause this. And like, it's really hard to see. You actually have to go like frame by frame and look at it. It almost seems like it was an idea that Spielberg was like, no, nah, I shouldn't highlight, or maybe not take it out, but just don't highlight it too much because that makes it too obvious or something. But there's something there about sure, like a yeah. throwing back and forth of insults in like some sort of masculine childhood. Thing. Like there's something there. Um, For sure. But like I was saying, like that, that scene like is so visceral and like, I don't know, like, I taste the food in my mouth. It's, like, one of those things where the form really is meeting function where it's just, like, the way he shoots that food and how much of a super stimulus it is, like, makes you, like, smell it and taste it in a way that I'm not sure any food scene in any other movie has done quite as well for me. Except that none of it's food. Yeah, I know. It's, right? That's why it works <laughs> it's, so it's, well. Yeah, somehow. yeah, exactly. It's, like, it's just your imagination. It's just super stimulus. Like mm-hmm. It's like when you're a kid and Play-Doh looks really tasty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. You know? Totally. And, like, toys look like food. That movie definitely looks tasty the way that, like, anime food looks tasty and stuff. Mm-hmm. Totally. But the whole movie is tasty in that way. Like, the red of uh, Captain Hook's costume is so vivid and, like, sexy, man. And, like, I don't know, he's almost like Santa Claus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. Like, totally. There's, well. like... And I, yeah, I love the sets. Also, I just have to say, like, the set, the score for this movie is one of my favorite. Oh, it's a John great Lame score. Scores. It's a great score. I love the music in this movie. Yeah. John Williams is killing it. And it's like, it's, it's really not, 
considered one of his great scores or anything, but I think it's right up there with like the ones that people always talk about. You know, yeah. like yeah, I just think it's brilliant. And yeah, I just yeah, I, and the performances are incredible. Cinematography is beautiful. The cinematography is beautiful. The special effects are amazing. All the Tinkerbell moments still look good. Like yeah. it's all like really looks great. And totally, totally. The compositing those like wides of the island where like the, like the waterfall is actually moving and there actually is like moving water and like the thing with like the three moons and yeah, it's all insane. that like. All these establishing shots just look so incredible, even though they're like matte paintings composited with like film elements and all this shit. You know, it's like really wild stuff. Totally. And it's like right, like he released Jurassic Park after this. So this is like the, it's like one of the like last movies that kind of like, it's one of the heights of like matte painting work and just like practical effects, if you yeah, ask yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I like that. Um, I wonder if you already knew he was about to go into Jurassic Park, but it's weird that like the T-Rex gets mentioned in this movie. Okay. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When he says, um, when he's like on the phone and like, he says like this like billion dollar land acquisition deal is about to fall, fall apart because there's some kind of like endangered owl right. that like mates on this, the land this was, or whatever. And he's like, this was one of the things that was in Crispin Glover's essay, actually. Yeah? Yeah, he's talking about um, like, was the studio for DreamWorks like originally meant to be put on some Indian burial ground? <laughs> like, you know, what I mean? he's like asking, like, apparently there was some thing where like Spielberg wanted to like put uh, DreamWorks in some like endangered marsh or something. And like, oh. he, and like he ended up not doing it or something. But like Crispin Glover was like, didn't he consider that? even though he pretends to care about the environment? Like, wasn't he about to destroy the last habitat of the blobby-doo or something? Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's so funny, though, that he would have he's just like, are you fucking Manning, serious? Like, this whole thing's going to fall apart just because of some owl? Like, I think it might even have been some owl. Like, I'm, there's some, there, like, he's referencing himself there um, completely. Is that how long ago he was setting up DreamWorks? Like I feel like, 90s, yeah, like? I feel like DreamWorks was, I feel like DreamWorks might have been right before Hook. Like, it was originally founded on October 12th, 1994. Bam. Okay, so, so he was, was right definitely afterwards. had it on the mind. Yeah. He was probably shopping around for where to build it and all this kind of I shit. I mean, he'd been, he'd, I'm sure he'd had it on the mind ever since Zoetrope closed. Like, it's, it's been like a yeah, you yeah, know, long time. Sure. But yeah. yeah, that was probably like he had it on the mind, meaning like he was looking for places to build it. Um, and mm -hmm. like was actually yeah, complaining that's, about that's that controversy so in this movie. Cool. Um, yeah. But as I was going to say, he says, like, you know, does anybody miss the Tyrannosaurus Rex? Right, right. And like, you know, yep, yep. and then the kid, and then like Jack's like, I do. And then he starts going, rawr, rawr, and like yeah, a shadow yeah, yeah. keeps it's getting bigger hands. and bigger on the wall. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> That's awesome. A little bit of advertising. I also think, I also think Rufio's um, necklace looks like a bunch of velociraptor claws too. It's like probably just a bunch of like hawk talons or something, but. It's also what Turok uses, um, right? Yeah. Like a Turok kind of <laughs> necklace. <laughs> Turok was definitely post-91, yes? yes? It was N64, I, oh, so it was definitely so. post-91. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a reference sure. to Rufio. Rufio was not a reference to Turok. <laughs> it's also just like, I think that's one of the Native American elements that they yeah. threw onto Rufio. Like, right, Rufio's right. just weird. Like, he's a, he's a punk with, like, a fucking, like, mohawk. No, but he is, but he he is the Native like, American. I mean, he's not, but he's Filipino yeah, yeah. or something. Like, he, Yeah, I don't know. something like that. South American, maybe of some kind. He's got, you know, some native blood of somewhere, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. 
But we also didn't talk about Tinkerbell a lot, and I guess she's a minor point in the movie, but I, I, I do... I do think her unrequited love for Peter is like handled in a way that's like really beautiful in this movie that it's like not in the original novel or the Disney one because mm-hmm. it really does like even in the the book it really is just like Tinkerbell is such a piece of shit. She's just like a completely jealous horn dog. Yeah, jerk who's like literally trying to get Wendy murdered. Mm-hmm. And um I I like how that's kind of transitioned into like her character is a lot less like cruel. And, like, she's just kind of filled with, like, a deep sadness that, like, nothing in her life has really worked out. Well, it's way. kind of like... Like, she just loves Peter Pan, like... Did, did you ever see that movie, The Company uh, You Keep? Did I ever show you that? No, I don't It was, think like, so. a movie that was based on the real case of, the like, Weather Underground people that blew up, a, like, a bunch of places. Like, uh, but they blew up a bank and, like, killed a security guard by accident. And they all had to go mm-hmm. underground and, like, disappear for, like, 30 years. And it wasn't until they came back in, like, I think it was, like, 2005 or something. Like, it, it, at least late 90s. Um, but they, like, one of them had a kid who had never met her father or whatever. And, like, they eventually came out and, like, faced the charges in order to, like, be able to see this kid and that sort of thing. So they all eventually mm-hmm. went in and faced their charges, like, 30, 40 years later. Um but it kind of feels like that type of reconnection, like romance thing. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, yeah, like this. Yeah, we had this thing like fucking back in the 60s. And like that was real. Like that was fucking real. And like it's sad that this is the way things went. But it's not. You know what I mean? It feels it, like it feels very mm-hmm. mature and like real, you know? Yeah. That connection with Tinkerbell. No, it does. And like she's I love the details that show her obsession. Like when once he's Peter Pan he flies to her house and she lives in a fucking clock, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is, you know, which is like, looks a lot like Big Ben. Mm-hmm. Um, but like when he opens the clock, you can see that she has like Peter's driver's license and his like credit card in there and stuff like that. And you can actually see like a little bit of information about Peter Banning, like that they live in San Francisco okay, and um, that his birthday is uh, February 12th. So he shares a birthday with Abraham Lincoln. Okay. Interesting. Um, but there's no um, year. It's just February 12th with no year. But, like, there's a Goldmaster credit card, a quarter and a nickel. There's BMW keys. Clearly, like, she... Ra- What's funny is that, like, when, like, Peter Pan, like, first reveals himself to Hook on the ship saying, those are my kids or whatever, he, like, pulls out his wallet and, like, like Smee just takes it and, like, throws it. So right. it's like, like Tinkerbell went out of her way to like collect it and like yep, yep. make this like weird shrine in her, like, right, in like her a, house. That's like a like Manson girl, a weird dude. That's shrine what she to is. Former She's a Manson stuff. girl. She's um, a squeaky from. And then she makes her her one wish is to grow bigger and give him a real kiss, and she does. But then she like says, "You silly ass" to him, and I, I was like, "That's such a weird thing to say." But that's actually like primarily the only thing Tinkerbell says in the book. She just says, oh, "You silly really? ass" over okay. and over again. Okay. Yeah, that's funny. There's a lot of lines from the book that make it into the movie, like uh, "like dark and sinister man, have at thee," or like "it's me or Hook this time." And then there's like you know, to die would be an awfully big adventure. You know, and stuff like that. Like those are all from yeah, the yeah, book. Yeah, yeah. Um, Interesting. To yeah. live would be an awfully big adventure. No, that's that's what or Spielberg does. That, yeah, to okay. live is like a subversion of the line in the book. Right. 
right. like where like Hook's like death exactly. is the only adventure you have left, and he's like to die would be an awfully grand adventure. But then, like, yeah, and they yeah. say that at the, in, in Hook as well and during the final fight. But then the very last yeah. line of the movie is to live. That would be an awfully big adventure, which right. is, like, a far more positive, like, <laughs> outlook, I guess. You know? Yeah. It's just like, yeah. oh, we're looking Somewhere. forward to dying. That's the last adventure we have left. It's like, no, no, no. Like, live. Maybe <laughs> if you believe in something, then you will have something else other than death. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, you're just gaining capital until death. Yeah, I can see why you're having trouble finding a happy thought, Peter. So many sad memories. Yeah, man. That's life. The, the, the whole idea of, like, the happy thought, you know, like, being... I mean, you also need the fairy dust, I guess. Right. But... Or you need to have a happy thought, which is weird. Yeah, and, like, the longer you live as this callous adult, like, you have no more happy thoughts, nothing to hold on to. I think Toodles says, like, no more happy thoughts... Lost, lost. <laughs> he lost his marbles. He's lost his marbles. But he gets them back. Mm-hmm. That's that's another. So that's another one that I think is kind of an amoral, right, guy. Toodles. You'd be yeah. I mean, you could be amoral because you're an an angel, or because you're a child, or because you're tripping on acid, or because you lost your marbles. That's yeah, like, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Those are mm-hmm. all ways to be in this psychedelic state of like nothing, you know, makes any sense. And there is no thing other than whatever it is you're doing or something, you know? For sure. For sure. But I like, well, that, yeah. you know, through going to that psychedelic realm, you can come back and be like, oh, yo, you and me, we're on the same page. Mm-hmm. Like, here's your marbles back. And he's like, oh, you get it. Cool. And then he starts fucking flying at the end. It's so great. <laughs> What a what a ridiculous ending! <laughs> that's why. I well, that's it, what's great about it because like it maintains this like dream reality thing. Yeah, yeah. You can think that like this is the real world and they were just pretending and stuff. But to have Toodles actually just like pour fairy dust on himself and fly away and like <laughs> like you know and they're just like whoa and they like go out of the window and they watch him fly away. It's just like yeah, yeah. You just had to do this so that like yeah. nothing could be certain. <laughs> yeah well it's kind of it's kind of like the end of uh what's it called right birdman birdman yeah for sure that makes we, we can choose to believe that he just flies away mm-hmm. <laughs> or we can we can realize what really happened <laughs> toodles just fell to his death <laughs> like, toodles, he gave him his marbles and then he's like oh and just jumped out the window <laughs> and the whole family had to deal with that the end yeah <laughs> This is another movie that, um, like, has Ends more... Ends with suicide? No. Yeah, yeah. Well, this, well, suicide's a topic in this movie, and, like, I'm, I'm really just, Probably. like, kind of amazed at how many Robin Williams movies I go back to now that just, like, feel so connected to his death. Oh, yeah. Robin Williams movies, but also Christmas movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Christmas movies are always about suicide, too. It's weird, yeah. I mean, Steven Spielberg, um, apparently, after, you know, Robin Williams died, he, like, revisited this movie... And um, just couldn't finish it because he like kept crying. Yeah, and I guess and I guess at this point, Spielberg is like very grateful that he made this movie because this is the movie that where he became friends with Robin Williams. You know, and they they maintained mm-hmm. a pretty mm-hmm. close friendship from that point. And whatever. Yeah, yeah. The loss of Robin Williams really is like you really feel the weight of it when you go back and watch Robin Williams movies. Just like really miss him and like the joy he brought to things and like. 
he's like really the perfect person for this role, you know? And like, he's the only oh, yeah. one that you could actually be convinced by like becoming Peter Pan and like making that transition and being a child in an adult's body, which I guess he would then go do in Jack with Coppola after that. But um, Yeah. And in a much more extreme way in Jack. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I, I just, I just revisited, but he actually like completely feels like a eight year old, 10 year old kid in that movie in yeah. an adult spot like it's transformative it's weird he's in this movie he feels like he's re- he's gaining his joy and whatever of childhood and that sort of thing in that movie it feels like he's like just like a scared little kid like it, it's it's different weird, yeah, um, yeah i haven't seen jack in a while yeah it's worth revisiting bizarrely i know that's not a popular thing to say especially if you're tying it in with saying that hook's good too but it's, it's an interesting it's an interesting movie i'm telling you jack's jack's weird dude and it's basically just because like his performance is incredible like the rest of that movie is pretty straightforward but robin williams in that movie is totally incredible and transformative because he is like the only guy that you can believe would be an eight-year-old kid like yeah yeah i mean all there's yeah, something it's just it's there's really a sadness there that works yeah i don't know it's just like it's it holds this movie holds a lot of power man this movie has a lot of power in it because of all these different things that like couldn't have even been intended you know just like such a crazy combination of talent and like imagination that's just sort of unmatched in a lot of ways it's i mean it still blows my mind to this day that this movie is not like considered a great spielberg movie you know so we're here to defend the movies you hate (laughs) (laughs) that's right that's right. Well, I hope we did. You should watch Hook again, guys. <laughs> You'd watch it. It's not bad. And every Christmas, let's normalize Hook being a Christmas movie. I mean, it, it, it should be. It should be considered should one of the be. greats. For sure, man. But yeah, we should probably wrap it up. I mean, there's Word. tons more to say about this movie, but... Oh, dude, there's, there's several more hours, but not today. Not today. We'd have to be in Le- Neverland and have no time... To, to account for in order yes. to, you know. yes yes this clock here is telling me that i need to worry about ending this podcast <laughs> this clock is telling me that i haven't eaten anything in hours yeah that'll and that'll i can't work. just imagine food to eat <laughs> unfortunately but like you know whatever man don't be so literal minded imagination is food for the soul you know exactly exactly yeah. man so with that in mind, I guess uh, good night, everyone. Oh, wait, I was thinking. You want a, you want a new <laughs> sign off? Oh, you got it. <laughs> you just killed my sign off. Right. <laughs> no, but you were saying, like, uh, before, you were like, you want to try new sign offs or whatever? But I just thought of a good one. What's your good one? For the, it might not be a good one for this episode. I don't know. Maybe yours was fine for this episode, but I was just thinking of a good one. <laughs> It's I was just, just going to change my sign up every episode <laughs> like to something that felt appropriate. Right. That works. <laughs> but then we can come works. up, we can you come go up right with ahead one. and sign up. <laughs> All right. I was just, yeah, you, you just, you do yours. All right. So how, how are we signing off here then? Are we keeping all this? <laughs> Good question. Good, Good question. night, Neverland. <laughs> <laughs> all right, dude. Peace out. Peace.